time for episode three of the Consistent Calvinism podcast. Uh, if you haven't seen or listened to the first two episodes, go ahead and check them out. Uh, episode one covers free will as a concept quite exhaustively. Uh, episode two was on whether or not God can foreknow free will choices. So it talks about, you know, God's foreknowledge, um, what I believe to be the absolute death knell of the free will position, how, you know, a true free will, a truly consistent free will position must deny that God knows the future if free will were an actual thing. We cover all those issues in episode two, and in this episode, uh, we're going to make a little pit stop here and address a very short 12-minute video that Leighton Flowers of Soteriology 101 put out recently. Um, it was on. It was titled um, Ben Shapiro on Calvinism, and Ben Shapiro had a guest on who was a, a a lady who was a Calvinist, and I'm sure there's you know the episode was obviously longer than what Leighton plays here, um, but what he plays here he plays to try to prove particular points. And the primary thing we're going to be discussing here is the idea of human responsibility in light of God being in control of all things. Um, obviously a very important thing to address. A lot of people get hung up on this issue, and it is the issue that probably prevents them from, you know, adopting a Calvinist position in the end, is how can God hold you responsible for something that he has determined that you will do? Okay? So this is the sorts of things that we're going to be addressing in this episode. Uh, I'm going to start off by playing the very first part of this clip to give you an idea of what's going on, and then I'm going to lay out a very, very long foundational, um, or a couple foundational concepts here. Take the time to get that out of the way, so that as we play through the rest of this, we can sort of point back and say, see, told you so, see, already covered that, and uh, we'll save time in that sense. But there's a lot of very important foundational things that I'm going to need to lay out um, as we get started here. The obvious question that, uh, you know, a, a Jewish person or an unbeliever or a, an atheist or anybody out there might have is the very question that Ben Shapiro brings up here is, okay, uh, if you believe that, that God's just predetermined who he's going to save and who he's not, then what do you do with human responsibility? I mean, do you, do you believe that we have responsibility for our choices and how do you square that? How do you, how do you explain that? And here's how she answers. Now, before we get to how Ben Shapiro's Calvinist guest answers, um, there's quite a few things I need to lay out here, and this this provides the basic foundation here of what Leighton's saying and the foundation of this this particular episode. We're we're talking about you know how can God hold people responsible for things that He determined them to do? How can God hold people responsible who could not have ultimately done otherwise? Right? And the first most important thing I need to point out if we're going to talk about this issue is that both sides, okay, both sides are stuck with the ability to do otherwise as being strictly hypothetical, and not ultimate, okay? Even the non-Calvinist side, for example, has God creating people, knowing their entire lives ahead of time, you know, knowing whether or not they're going to be saved, and God does not ask these people if they'd like to be created. In other words, your very existence was not up to you. It was up to God and God alone. So ultimately, we're going to use that word a lot. We always have to distinguish between God and the ultimate level, the transcendent position as the divine author and creator. Ultimately speaking, it was up to God whether or not you existed. And therefore, it was also, ultimately speaking, up to God what resulted from your existence, right? God created you knowing everything that you would do. And he could have created you differently, right? So, so ultimately, it's up to God. It's not up to us. The only idea of things being up to us is on that storyline level. As, as creation unfolds, yes, we are making choices, 
but they're time-bound choices. We don't transcend time. We don't transcend creation. We are not on God's ultimate level when we make choices. And we talked about this in episode one extensively, how since God is the divine author, he's the one who plans and purposes all things, including our existence, our lives, our choices, our actions. They're all part of his story, his plan, his purposes. It can be said that God as the divine author chooses our choices. And that's not a contradiction because there's a difference on God's ultimate level and your storyline level, right? But it's wrong for you to say that you chose your choices because that's trying to fit two layers into the storyline layer. You don't choose what you'll choose. You just choose, you know, as you live your life, you make choices, but you didn't choose the choices that you would make. In order for you to have chosen the choices that you would make, Pain-Chu is sitting outside of transcending your own existence and somehow mapping out your own choices, you're choosing that choice, and you're choosing that choice, and you're choosing that choice, and then, okay, let's set it in motion. But this is not what happens. That is God's ultimate position. God is the one who chooses this choice, and chooses that choice, and chooses the next choice. And then he creates, and it unfolds. So, it can most certainly be said that God as the divine author chose our choices. And so this brings up the obvious question of how is God then holding, respons holding us responsible for the choices that he determined that we would make? But as I'm pointing out here, both sides are stuck with God in the ultimate position. Both sides are stuck with God's being in ultimate control of whether or not people exist and how and when and, you know, how, where and when people exist. And therefore, God is ultimately the one who chooses when, where and how to create people. And he's the one who chooses which life, quote unquote, life that we have, which life we will live out. Okay. So when he starts, when he starts this whole thing off by saying, this is just an obvious question that any non-Calvinist, basically, right? Non-Calvinist non would have. It's a, it's, it's, a, it's a basic question any non-Christian would have for any Christian who believes that God knows the future, okay? So he asks, uh, if God is just predetermining who he will save and not save, you know, blah, blah, blah. But again, this is equally applicable to your view. You believe God is creating people knowing whether or not they will end up saved, whether or not God will save them or not. And so how, how, do you not, how do you escape the fact that God, by creating the people he knows will end up in hell, is determining that those people will end up in hell by creating them in that particular way? Okay? So, obviously, I would hope you would agree God could have created people differently. Right? It's one thing to say that God was forced to create people. I don't think anybody's going to say that. God could have created people differently. Right? So if he knows that by creating someone in a particular situation, when, where, and how he creates them, that they're going to end up not saved, and there's nothing that anybody can do to change that, right? But if God had created them differently, in a different situation, a different time, different location, different parents, then they would have ended up saved. Then why not create them in such a way that they end up saved? Again, God's the one who gets to choose. God's the one who's in control, right? How do you not? How do you avoid God being the ultimate determinative? Um, having ultimate determinative control over all these things as creator, right? And if you try to find a way out of this logical, logical um, fact by trying to say that, well, yes, God could have created people differently, but the people who end up saved would never be, have been saved anyways. In other words, there's no, no matter how they were created, the people who end up in hell would have always ended up there. As ridiculous as that claim would be, I think you'd have a hard time justifying that on a logical basis. But then I just have to ask, why create them at all? Again, that seems to be assuming that God is forced to create people. 
right? If, if God knows that a particular person's existence is 100% hopeless, that there's no way, no chance, no possible future in which a particular person could possibly end up saved, then why, why create them in the first place, right? If it's your claim that God doesn't want anybody in hell, why not just not create them? Seems pretty simple to me. God could save those people, the pain and suffering of eternal, eternal torment, and he could also, since you believe he wanted them saved, God could save himself the eternal pain and grief and sadness of having somebody he wanted to be saved being lost for eternity. He could save everybody all of that by just not creating them. So I, I would like an answer to that question. Right? So all of these questions come flying into the face of any Christian, not just Calvinist, but any Christian um, who believes that God is in control of who exists, when, where, and how people exist, and knows the future knows the results of his own actions. And we covered that extensively in episode two. God is knowing the results of his own actions. And so by taking that action, you determine and ensure that what will result from that action will come to pass. Okay? So I don't have time to do it here, but when people say, oh, just, but hold on a minute. Just because God foreknows something will happen doesn't mean he determined it. I covered that extensively in episode one and episode two. Right? How God is knowing the, foreknowing the results of his own action. God knows that by creating people in particular ways. Right? The only reason he knows their futures is because he's considering the way in which he'll create them. Long story short, you got to go see the, listen to the other episodes to, to, to fully flesh that out. But don't just let people say, oh, oh God, just because God knows the future doesn't mean he determined it. As creator, everything he knows about the future is going to be grounded in his own actions. Okay. Long story short, though, these are questions that all, Christ, all Christians need to ask, not just the Calvinists. And it seems to me that the reason that people think that Calvinists are the only ones who have to a answer these questions is that we're the only ones who, who answer the tough questions. These are tough questions for any Christian. And since Calvinists are the ones who are always manning up and, and going, you know, onto the front lines to answer the tough questions, it appears to people, you know, that we're the only ones that have to answer them. Free will people just sit in the back lines, just wave the free will flag, right? Oh, here's my free will flag. They think it's the answer to all these questions, but it's not. Okay, so we're the Calvinists are the only ones who man up, answer the tough questions. Everybody else doesn't even consider them. They don't even think that they need to answer these questions. But I'm pointing out here that they do. These are questions that are applicable to every single Christian, right? And one of the best things you can do for yourself and your worldview is to sit down, seriously consider the tough questions. You need to be able to provide answers to them from your worldview. And if you can't, if you find yourself appealing to mystery a lot or just saying, oh, I'll get to that another day or it's not important or blah, blah, blah. Well, you know, I can't stop you from doing that. But you need to realize then that you don't get to point over at my side for answering these tough questions and criticize us and pretend like we're the only ones that need to answer them. Right. That's not fair. Um, so at the end of the day, free will is stuck answering the very same questions we are and as we show in episode one there, they actually have quite a few questions of their own that need to be answering that are actually the result of um, holding the free will in the first place. So moving on here, uh, he, he asks, what then, like, what do you do with uh, human responsibility? What do you do with it? Well, the fact of the matter is that nothing needs to be quote unquote done with it, right? It's, it's very simple, actually, right? Human responsibility is an aspect of creation. Right? It wouldn't exist unless creation exists. It is not this transcendent rule that stands alongside God that, that sets out the rules of which in the ways in which he is allowed to conduct creation. Okay? Human responsibility is one of the ways that God has chosen to make creation. 
right? He's chosen for things to be this way. He's chosen that people will exist, that, that they'll be given commands, that they'll obey or disobey those commands, and be held responsible, okay? And whether or not God is in control of all of that is completely irrelevant to what, hu- what human responsibility is as a concept. It's nothing more than you being responsible to the commands of God, okay? So there's actually no contradiction here, right? Calvinists would say that the Bible teaches God controls all things, determined all things, purposed all things, planned all things, and that he holds people responsible. It teaches both. The only reason this seems contradictory to people is because they have come along and falsely assumed this ridiculous false assumption that responsibility to God presupposes freedom from God, right? This false assumption they bring to the picture. It's only when you introduce this false claim that responsibility to God presupposes freedom from God that the two truths, God controls all things and holds people responsible, appear to contradict. But if you take that false assumption out of the picture, you just have two statements of fact. God determines all things and holds people responsible. God holding people responsible is part of what he's determined, right? It's part of the story, part of the picture, right? So one of the things I always like to do is show that this false assumption is completely obliterated by my three favorite verses in the entire Bible, which I repeated continuously in the first two episodes. Hebrews 1.3, Acts 17, and Colossians 1. Just to briefly summarize, Hebrews 1.3 says that God upholds the universe by his power, and the verse is always true. So these three verses talk about God's metaphysical relationship to the things he's created, to give a brief summary of the first episode. And God didn't just create everything and let go of it metaphysically. God created everything, and everything by definition of being finite, by definition of being created, by definition of being less than God, relies upon God's power for continued existence at all times. Hebrews 1.3 says that God upholds the universe, which would include you. God upholds everything he's created by his power. Colossians 1 says the exact same thing, different phrase. It says, in God all things consist or have their being. And the verse is always true. There is not one moment of time where that verse is, is, is not true. And Acts 17 brings it on, down onto our level, the personal level, and says that we live and move and have our being in God. And the verse is always true. There's not one moment of time, even when you're sinning, in fact, even when you're sinning, you are living and moving and having your being in God. Even when you're sinning, God is upholding your existence by his power. So, apparently, to make a long story short, and you'll, you can see more in episode one on that, but apparently, God does not need to metaphysically disconnect himself from sin, quote-unquote. Because sin is, again, it's the breaking of laws, it's, the, it's a description of the actions of human beings. There's nothing sinful about the material that you're made out of, or the material that Satan is made out of, the spiritual matter, or the physical matter. There's nothing bad about the things that God created. There's nothing bad about the things that God sustains. There's nothing inherently evil about the material and the matter and the energy that God continuously upholds and controls. So God can be the cause of all things, including sinful actions, and not be a sinner, because it's not about touching evil things or controlling evil things. Evil is a description of of disobedience to the laws of God. So causation on God's part is dealing with simple metaphysics, which as these three verses lay out is unavoidable. God is the sustaining power behind all things, including sinful actions. And yet God's not a sinner because sin deals with laws. So the only way God could be sinning is if there's a law that said, God, thou shalt not. God, thou shalt not control sin. Well, then God would be sinning by controlling sin. God, thou shalt not plan or purpose sin. Well, then God would sinning by doing, be doing, that, doing those things. God, thou shalt not cause sin or sustain sinners while they sin. Then God would be sinning. 
But the obvious fact is there's, there's no laws for God. Nobody created God. Nobody presides over God. Nobody gave God any laws. So that's a long story short on the Calvinist answer to the problem of evil to begin with and why this false assumption, bringing it back now to the idea of responsibility, that pre, uh, responsibility to God presupposes freedom from God. If the three verses I just read are always true, then you are never free from God, not even for one moment of your existence. You're never free from God. You can't be. And this is also the basis upon which episode one says it's impossible. I, I said is it, it is impossible for God to give you free will in the first place. It's impossible for God to create you as a self-sustained, self-determined, self-caused entity. It's impossible for you to create your choices out of nothing. It's impossible for you to be your first, own first mover. It's impossible for you to um, self-determine or self-cause your actions or your thoughts. Because that is that would violate Hebrews 1.3 and Acts 17 and Colossians 1 and teach that you are a separate ultimate power at work. The point of these verses is everything happens according to the sustaining power of God. God is the ultimate power behind all powers that we observe. Right? And so there's really no, there's, again, when you obliterate this false assumption, responsibility presupposes freedom. If it can be shown that you're never free from God, then the entire false assumption is obliterated on the spot. And once it's obliterated, you're still left with God determining all things, controlling all things, and holding people responsible. There's no issue. There's no contradiction. Right? The contradiction is manufactured. And it's all based on emotion. It's all based on, as you're going to see as we talk through this episode, it's all based on you know, false analogies of, we like to draw humanistic analogies of how we interact with other people and how we hold other people responsible and then try to move those analogies over to God, on to God and you'll see how this becomes a big problem. So, um, when Leighton Flowers here asks, well, what do you do with human responsibility? I've shown what I've done with it. I put it in a proper context. It's part of creation. God can control all things and still hold people responsible. People, God holding people responsible is part of the what he has determined. And there's no contradiction because the very premise of your false assumption that you, that you can be free from God in the first place is made impossible by Hebrews 1, 3, Acts 17, and Colossians 1. So I would actually flip this around again after providing the answers. I'm not just saying, well, you need to answer it too, and then, you know, that's the end of the, end of the story. After giving these answers, I flip this around on you, and I would ask, how do you square human responsibility with verses like Hebrews 1, 3? If God is exerting power and upholding sinners even while they sin, right, then, then what's your, how do you fit human responsibility into that? They can't even be sinning apart from the power of God, right? I mean, just, just think about this. Take any sin you want to consider. You know, everybody likes to go for Hitler. God upheld Hitler by his power every moment of Hitler's existence, even while Hitler was doing all those terrible things. And how ironic is it that... Everybody wants to metaphysically distance God from sin, right? When the Bible teaches clearly that nothing can even come to pass, including sin, can even come to pass apart from the sustaining power of God to begin with. So you can't escape these things, right? This is why Hebrews 1, 3, Acts 17, and Colossians 1 are so groundbreaking. Not groundbreaking, ground, uh, worldview shattering is what I meant to say. They are so foundationally important that they, they cause your worldview to be seen in an entirely new light, Okay. So moving back to, um, again, responsibility, this idea of being, need, needing to be free from God and so on and so forth. God did not need to create you with free will so that he could hold you responsible, right? Because responsibility, as I've already shown, has nothing to do with the ultimate sense of being able to do otherwise or the ultimate sense of being in quote-unquote quote, control. Ultimately, God's the one who's in control. 
Ultimately, God is the one who plans everything out. And both sides are stuck with that, once again. So what is responsibility then? Responsibility is based on the simple relationship of God giving commands and whether or not you disobey them. So let's focus in on this ability to do otherwise and say, well, is there actually a sense? There's got to be some sort of sense in which ability to do otherwise is applicable. And there actually is, right? And it's in the hypothetical sense, right? And this is where we start talking about natural ability versus moral ability. It's in the hypothetical sense. When you look back on your actions, particularly your sinful actions, and you dissect the situation, you examine it, I argued in episode one that it's logically impossible for you to say that ultimately you could have done otherwise. In order for you to have been able to do otherwise, or to have done otherwise, I should say, that the situation would have needed to have been different. In other words, you acted quote-unquote freely only in the sense that you did what you want, you act on your desires, but in order for you to have desired to do the other thing, something about the situation or what led up to you doing or desiring to do that, that thing would have had to have been different. Something would have had to have caused you to do otherwise. But since nothing in that situation did, you did what you did, it couldn't have been otherwise on the ultimate level. So in what sense could you have done otherwise? It's only in the hypothetical sense, okay? Only in the hypothetical sense. So to give a couple examples of, of this, we're going to talk about the idea of moral ability or inability and natural ability or, or inability. And to do this, I'll give a couple examples and, and you'll see that at the end of this, this is actually a way in which we speak all the time in, in daily life. So let's start with the idea of mothers who love their children. Now, when I say what I'm about to say, this is unfortunately becoming more and more rare these days with, with abortion on the rise. But let's just assume that, that this is across the board. A mother will say, I cannot murder my child. I just can't do it. And they use the word can't, cannot, unable, right? But if you stop and ask them, wait a minute, what do you mean you can't? There's nothing stopping you from physically doing it, right? There's 101 different ways that a mother can murder her child. They're all there. They're all open to her. They're all, quote unquote, you know, possible. But that is talking about the natural faculties, naturally speaking. It's like, you know, I can pick up this uh, Coke bottle here because I have the natural faculties to do it, but I can't fly to the moon, right? I don't have the natural faculties to fly to the moon. So natural ability is separate from moral ability in the sense that I can want to do things that I can't naturally do, right? And so it would, it would not make any sense to hold people responsible for not doing something that they can't naturally do, right? I can't fly to the moon naturally. So even if I wanted to, it makes no sense to hold me responsible for not flying to the moon because I can't do it, right? But on the moral level here, a mother, she says, I cannot murder my child. It's not that she can't physically do it. It's not that she can't hypothetically have the natural means of doing it in all sorts of different ways. She can't murder her child because of the moral love, the disposition of love that she has for her child, right? It prevents her from taking a natural action in that sense. Um, a victim who is a victim of a crime, a perpetrator, victim might say, I cannot forgive that person. Now, why can't they forgive them? Is it because they can't forgive, period? Is it because that they don't have this faculty of forgiveness at their disposal? No. They can't forgive them because of the disposition of hatred that they have towards the perpetrator, right? And until that disposition changes, and that's an important point here, nobody's saying that dispositions cannot change. Nobody's saying that if somebody is morally unable to do something that they will always be unable to do it. Dispositions can change. But until the disposition of that victim changes towards the perpetrator, 
and moves from hatred towards something else, they'll be able to say, I cannot forgive them, right? Their hatred will prevent them from doing that. And to bring it on to a lighter subject, uh, we, talk this, we talk this way all the time in daily life. And, you know, especially when it comes to simple things like food, right? Things we really like and dislike. I might look at something in disgust and say, I could never eat that. I can't eat that. You couldn't pay me to eat that, right? And you would look back at me and say, well, what do you mean? You can put it in your mouth and chew and swallow. You've got the natural faculties at your disposable, disposal to eat that. So what are you talking about? You can't eat it. Well, I'm talking about the moral sense. So we speak this way all the time, okay? And in fact, the Bible in multiple instances speaks this way. So what am I getting at here? I'm getting at the difference between natural ability and moral ability is a reality. It's a reality not just that we're, you know, um, talking about uh, as, as some sort of possible existence. It exists in, in such a way that the Bible brings it out in multiple instances. So if we look, for example, at the story of Joseph's brothers and specifically Genesis 37.4, listen closely. This, this is exactly what I've been saying. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now, it uses the phrase could not, inability, unable. They were unable to speak peacefully to him. Now, if I were to say, well, wait a minute, what do you mean? Their mouths were not sewn shut. They spoke the same language, right? They were not mutes. They had the hypothetical means at their disposal to speak peacefully to him. Of course they could have. So what is this verse saying? Well, it's talking about the moral aspect. It's a moral inability. Their disposition of hatred towards their brother, towards Joseph, prevented them from utilizing the natural faculties of speech to speak peacefully to him. So notice, it's not that they couldn't speak, period. It's that they couldn't speak peacefully to him because of the moral disposition. Okay? And so I'm going to give a, I'm going to move on to Pharaoh here in a minute, but it, that takes a lot more um, time. But I just want to stop here and point out how critical this topic is to the idea of Calvinism. When Calvinists say that man in their fallen state is unable to come to God, unable to love God, unable to believe in God, after everything I've laid out, we are not saying that there's something broken about man's natural faculties. So that poor man is created by God in such a way that they're down here really wanting to believe in God and really wanting to love God and really wanting to obey God, but they're just broken and they, they can't do it. They can't, quote-unquote, fly to the moon, right? They can't do something they want to do. And then the mean, terrible Calvinist God comes along and punishes them. After everything I just laid out, you should see how obvious it is that Calvinists are talking when we say man is unable to come to God. It is the moral ability that we're referencing, okay? It's not that man can't love, period. They love all sorts of things. They love all sorts of bad things. They do a lot of loving. The point is they can't love God because they hate him. And until that disposition of hatred is changed, they're going to continue to hate God and love other things. So man can love God in the hypothetical faculty sense. It's possible for them at all times. It's just that they don't want to, and until God changes their heart, they will never want to. That is the basis of responsibility. The basis of responsibility is... First of all, God commands them to love him. They're able to, in the natural sense of having the faculties, able to love him, but they just don't want to, okay? And then we move on to the idea of faith. God commands people, believe in me, right? It's not that unsaved people can't believe, period. It's not like their faith box, their faith mechanism is shattered. 
They are believing constantly in false things, false idols, right? They are very active in their faith. It's just all towards the wrong stuff because, again, their disposition of enmity with God, hatred towards God, love for themselves and other things. And until that disposition is changed, they will not be properly exercising their faculty of faith. So again, the responsibility is based upon the faculty of faith being there, being possible, only in the hypothetical sense, not the ultimate sense, don't confuse the two, only in the hypothetical sense, that is the basis for responsibility. So again, when, when Calvinists say that man is unable to come to God, they're unable to come to God because they hate him, right? Man hates God and does not come to God because they don't want to, they hate him, okay? So I... I and, and this will come out a little bit later. Again, I'm laying foundations here because Leighton's going to start talking. He's, he's going to come along and say, well, free will means that we, can, we have both natural and moral ability to do these things, right? But I'm showing that that's not always the case. In fact, the Bible speaks of these things in the exact ways I'm talking about. The Bible makes a distinction between uh, natural ability and moral ability. And now I'd like to move on to the idea of Pharaoh which once again demonstrates the important difference between natural ability and moral ability. Um, again, anytime Pharaoh's brought up, people want to run off and start pretending like they've got answers to this and that and heart hardening. Let's just keep this simple for the sake of this episode. We're talking about natural and moral ability. Obviously, Pharaoh had the natural ability to let the people go, right? God gives the command, let the people go. Pharaoh could have given his command to let the people go. Pharaoh could have walked the people out himself, right? He had the natural faculties at his disposal to do those things, to obey the command, to let the people go. What was the problem, though? He didn't want to because he hated God, right? He hardened his heart against God. And so, once again, we have the distinction between responsibility, right? For, you know, Pharaoh hardened his heart against God, and yet the Bible makes it clear that ultimately God was the one in control of that hardening. So responsibility is not, once again, not based on Pharaoh's or anybody else's ultimate ability to do otherwise on the ultimate level. God is in control of these things. Responsibility is based upon the command of God that is given and the faculties at the person's disposal to have done them if they had wanted to. But morally speaking, Pharaoh could not have let the people go. Okay, so, and, and just stop and think about this. Again, ultimately, could Pharaoh have done otherwise? Ultimately, the answer is no. Right? God himself said, go to Pharaoh and I will harden his heart so that he won't. So unless you're going to call God a liar and say, well, yes, of course, Pharaoh had free will. Pharaoh could have done otherwise, even on the ultimate level. You're calling God a liar when you do that. Because God said, I'm going to harden his heart so that he won't. So, and this isn't even this mere idea of God's just predicting the future, right? That's enough of an, as I've already mentioned, you know, God knows the future. God knew by creating Pharaoh, he would do this, do that, do that, and not let the people go. Pharaoh can't do other, other than what God knows he'll do if he creates him. Now we zoom in and actually show that God is involved in the situation. God himself is making sure that Pharaoh will not let the people go. So how do you take your false assumption that responsibility to God presupposes freedom from God and apply it to the case of Pharaoh? Right? If Pharaoh could not have let the people go, ultimately, because God made sure of it, then how, upon what basis, according to your false assumption, can God hold Pharaoh responsible? We know that he did, right? He sent plagues, he killed children, firstborns, and he destroyed Pharaoh and his army in the Red Sea. 
Lots of graphic stuff there. God was very, very unhappy with Pharaoh's disobedience to the simple command. So obviously God held Pharaoh responsible. But he held Pharaoh responsible for doing precisely what God made sure he would do. So how do you square? And you can start talking blah, 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 judicial hardening, blah, blah, blah. None of that answers the point that God's hardening of Pharaoh's heart resulted in him doing something that God then punished him for. God literally punished Pharaoh. He held Pharaoh responsible for doing something that God made sure he would do. How do you square the case of Pharaoh with your false assumption? That responsibility to God presupposes freedom from God. If There's only two options. Either you realize that the false assumption is false, and you, so you abandon it, and you lose the debate, or you would have to do some sort of doubling down and say, I'm going to hold on to that false assumption, and therefore you'd have to say God wouldn't hold Pharaoh responsible, right? If you're going to apply your rule to Pharaoh, Pharaoh, God, Pharaoh did precisely what God determined he would do, and so God is not going to hold Pharaoh responsible. But I, I've already pointed out that he did. He destroyed him. Killed his firstborn, he destroyed him. So he was held responsible. Okay? So never mind all the fun and games. Pharaoh is a direct contradiction to the claim that God can only hold you responsible if he is not determining what you do. He's a direct contradiction to it. And since we're on the topic of Pharaoh, we can't mention Pharaoh without bringing up Romans 9. Now, anytime Romans 9 is brought up, people start running off in all sorts of directions and they think that they've got all the answers and Calvinists, you know, they, Calvinists just misinterpret this and misinterpret that. I just want to focus on the simple concept of human responsibility and what Romans 9 has to say about human responsibility, okay? So in verse 17, it talks about Pharaoh. And it's, God says, for this very purpose, I raised you up that I might show my power in you and make my name known throughout the earth. And that was in his destruction, by the way. The very concept we have here of responsibility, God's punishment to Pharaoh for something he determined that Pharaoh would do was the very purpose God had for raising Pharaoh up. The existence of Pharaoh, and, and so on and so forth. And so verse 19 says what every person it, you know, says on this topic. They, they basic, it's basically saying word for word what, what Leighton is saying throughout this entire episode. How can you hold people responsible for something God determines them to do? Verse 19 says, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? Right Now, this is obviously the will of God with regards to what is coming to pass. That's the context here. It has nothing to do with God's will, revealed will of commands. Those are resisted all the time. right? But, and that's the point is, God is finding fault with people for, resist, for resisting his commands, not whether or not they can resist his will with regards to what comes to pass. And this is, I don't know how you can not get more word for word. I'm going to do an episode in the future called Calvinism Word for Word. If... Romans 9 is not a refutation, word-for-word refutation, of responsibility presupposes freedom. The Bible could never teach it. It's impossible because the language is clear. Why does God still find fault if people cannot resist his will? And what is Paul's response? Well, first of all, it's who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Now, fortunately, he doesn't just leave it there. I mean, that's a true statement in and of itself, right? It's like when I point to the other side in my previous episode and say, they're just saying God's God, he can do it. Well, that can, that's a true statement. God's God, he can do it might be a true statement. It may or may not be, depending on what you're referencing, but you need to be able to demonstrate and explain why that is. Why is it that God's God and he can do it? Or why, in this case, why do we uh, as created things have 
no uh, are in no position to answer back to God when he's holding responsible, holding us responsible for things that he's determined that we do. And it's and he fortunately doesn't let's leave it there. He explains it. Will what is molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? So Paul introduces the entire concept I've been getting across of understanding God's transcendent creator sustainer position. He's not just another thing alongside us, right? It's not either me controlling something or you controlling something or this or that and the other. God can be controlling all things and we have a storyline level control that he has determined that we have. So, well, what has molded say to its molder? Why have you, made the, had, have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make the same lump? One vessel for honorable use, another for dishonorable use. What if God desiring to show his wrath, make his power known? On and on and on, right? So this is, and this is where people are going to run off and start talking about, oh, look over here in the Old Testament, this and that. We're going we're gonna to cover all that later. But how do you avoid, how do you avoid that this verse is teaching God's will can include the actions of men, his purposes and his plans in the actions of men, and yet still God can find quote-unquote fault and punish people as he did with Pharaoh, the example given here, destroy them for things that he determined and purposed and planned for them to do. That's what I want an explanation of. I don't want to hear about, oh, the clay, if you look over here, the clay spoil was spoiled, so we can assume free will that it spoiled itself. I don't want to hear about, well, loved and hated Jacob and Esau means loved less, and they represented nations, blah, 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 blah. We'll cover that later. All I want an answer to is the word-for-word statement. How, can, how is this not you coming along and saying, how can God judge me for something he determines I do? Calvinism is ridiculous. And yet here we have, why does he still find fault for who resists his will? Who are you, a man, to answer back to God? Will what is made say to the one who made it? Why did you make me like this? Right? Plain and simple. Direct refutation to responsibility to God presupposes freedom from God. If this cannot refute that statement, nothing ever could. Words could never refute your statement if this can't. So this is what I want an answer to. So I'd like to wrap up this uh, foundational, you know, foundational presentation, so to speak, about natural ability and moral ability by coming back to a generalized verse. Romans 8, we're all familiar with it. I just want you to, uh, as I read this, keep in mind what I've already laid out. And you'll see this come, you know, be, be very, made very clear. Romans 8, 7 says that the mind is set, the mindset on the flesh is hostile to God. There's your disposition. For it does not submit to God's law. There's your choice. They choose not to obey the law of God, right? Indeed, it cannot. So not only does man choose not to submit to God's law, this verse goes so far as to say they cannot. And I'm just asking you to realize that in what sense is it saying cannot? It's not talking about the natural faculties again. It's not talking about the fact that people are, in fact, able to submit to God's law in the terms of natural faculties, right? There's nothing preventing them, right, on the faculty level, there's nothing preventing them from loving God, worshiping God, serving God, obeying his commands, not murdering, not stealing, not lying, not blah, 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 blah. Nothing is forcing people to do those things in the sense of, you know, against their will, against their desires. Um, so when, when, when it says it cannot submit to the law of God, it's again, Joseph's brothers hated them and could not speak peacefully to him. Their inability is based upon their disposition of hatred, Right. Pharaoh could have let the people go, naturally speaking, but he did not want to because he hated God. He was hardening his heart against God. And the mindset on the flesh is hostile to God. There's the disposition. 
It cannot submit to God's law, not because it doesn't have the natural faculties to do so, but because it doesn't want to, and therefore, once again, responsibility is based upon the fact that people are not doing or not wanting to do things that they otherwise could do if they had wanted to. And until that disposition of hostility is changed, right? Again, dispositions can change. But until the disposition of hostility is changed, fallen man will never be able to submit to God's law. It, they cannot do it, the verse says. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And by the way, uh, how and why those dispositions change is best left for another lengthy discussion in another, at another time. Um, you know, free will would just say, well, we've got free will, so we just magically decide to change our dispositions. And the Calvinists would say that our dispositions are changed because of deterministic factors as well. It's all part of the deterministic chain of causes and effects, and we would have biblically-based reasons, determinative reasons behind why dispositions would change, but we'll save that for another time. So that is a a generalized summary of particular foundational things that we're going to cover, and as we hear them come through in in what Leighton is saying here, uh, we'll we'll pinpoint, zero in, and respond to those things um, as they come up. But we're going to move on with the clip. This is... um, I believe the response here. The same thing with Jesus said, a tree will be known by its fruit. And I mean, the Bible is filled with directives. The New Testament is filled with directives. The epistles by Paul are filled with directives, things that we are supposed to do. We are supposed to align our lives with Christ because of our salvation. Uh, Ephesians 2 says that we were dead in our sins, but we were saved by grace. It's not your own doing so that no man can boast. And so I think that's pretty clear that it wasn't our own doing for salvation, but because we were saved by Christ, uh, we kind of live up to that salvation through something called sanctification, which is the pursuit of holiness and the pursuit of a righteous life, which does include all the things that, a lot of the things that you believe in, which not the cleansing laws, but uh, a lot of the moral laws, which is giving to the poor and helping your community and living a life that uh, mirrors Christ. So are you choosing to do that, or is that just something that you were already going to do and you're basically kind of just living it out? So that, that part at the end there, um, are you just living it out? Uh, everybody who believes that God knows the future believes, is stuck with, you just living out what God knows you're going to do, right? You're going to do what you're going to do tomorrow. You can't do other than what you're going to do tomorrow. So why isn't your view stuck with you just living it out, right? This is something you need to address. And and the point here is, once again, God in the transcendent position as the divine author. Um, I have no problem with saying, yeah, you are living out the life that God, as your creator and your author, determined that you, you would have. And the verse I always use to support this is Psalm 139, 16, which literally says word for word that God, it, God is the divine author. Right? It says, your eyes saw my unformed substance in your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. You didn't write God's book for him. You did not form your own days. This is found nowhere in the Bible. This is the false assumption of free will, the idea of self-determinism, autonomy, freedom from God, found nowhere in the Bible. And for those who look back at what I say about God being the divine author and say, well, where's that found in the Bible? It's found right here. God wrote in his book the days he formed for you. And you live them out. They are, they are absolutely real. You make choices. You have thoughts. You take actions. God creates and brings about the very story that he has planned and purposed and determined. God's the one who makes it real. God does not need to give you this magical thing called free will. God does not need to give you freedom from him so that you can make it real. God as the divine author is the one who makes things real. He makes his story real. He brings it to life. He creates it. He sustains it. He brings it all about, right? When you square 
this verse with the idea of God upholding all things, and in God we live and move and have our being, right? God wrote in his book the days he formed for us. It is as plain as can be, and I don't know how you can possibly fit free will into this. But we're talking about responsibility. How do you fit responsibility into Psalm 139, 16? If God wrote in his book the days that he formed for us, it is impossible for you to make this verse say that you formed your own days. It is impossible. The verse says the days that were formed for me. If God formed your days for you, right, and then he creates you and you just quote-unquote live them out, as Ben Shapiro mockingly said here, how is God, why can God hold you responsible according to your own false assumption? If you're just living out the story that God wrote for you, why does he hold you responsible? How can he hold you responsible? Well, the answer is the things I've been laying out. Responsibility is part of that story. It doesn't transcend the story. It doesn't say, God, you can write stories for people, but here's the rules you have to play by, right? No. Responsibility is part of the story. It is part of what God has written in his book. It is part of the days that he has formed for you, right? So when people talk about things being scripted, they do so as if that's a terrible thing, when that's precisely what the Bible says. That's precisely what Psalm 139.16 says. So if you think your future being scripted and you just quote-unquote living it out is a terrible thing, then Psalm 139.16 is terrible, according to that same, same basis. Okay, so you see he's still trying to push on the point, because she didn't really answer the question. She and he's right. She didn't answer the question, to be fair. I want to stop here and point something out. She did not answer the question of this idea of responsibility of, you know, why is God holding you responsible if he's... She basically said what a lot of Calvinists say. They, they properly say that, look, the Bible teaches both that God is in full control of all things and he's commanded us to do things and we're held responsible. So the Bible teaches both that God is in control and that he holds us responsible. Those are both true things the Bible teaches. But instead of leaving it there and then saying, okay, class, are there any questions? And then when the other side starts yapping on about, oh, how is that fair, addressing the, qu the questions, what she does is what most Calvinists unfortunately do. Because they have bought into the same false assumption that responsibility must, must have some sort of this idea of freedom in play. And so they sort of just say, well, it's a mystery and we don't quite understand it. And I cannot stand this, right? It's enough that the Bible teaches that God controls all things and holds people responsible. The only reason that that would appear to be a contradiction is if you come along and falsely assume that responsibility presupposes freedom. If that premise that in order for God to hold you responsible, you need to be free from him. If that premise can be disproven and dispelled, then what we're left with are the two biblical truths, God controls all things and holds people responsible, and there's no contradiction. There's only a contradiction when people forcefully insert the false assumption found nowhere in the Bible that God can only hold you responsible if you're free from him. Okay? Found nowhere in the Bible. It is forced into the, into the discussion and unfortunately, a lot of Calvinists buy into that false assumption and think that that's something that they need to adapt to and play by, and they're forced to say, well, the Bible just teaches both and it's a mystery. And I can't stand that. Because once again, the Bible is not contradictory, right? The Bible is not contradictory. The Bible teaches truth. And so if, if you perceive a contradiction in what you think the Bible says, the problem's with you, not with the Bible. And in this case, the problem is with your false assumption that in order for God to hold you responsible, he needs to make you give you free freedom from him, uh, you need to be free from him, false assumption that you're forcing into the discussion, and therefore you are making the Bible appear to contradict itself when it actually doesn't. The fact of the matter is, God is in control of all things, and he holds people responsible. Okay? 
she just points out that there are a lot of directives in scripture. We should be pursuing these things. Um, we are responsible for the fruit that we bear. Yep. Um, but he's still going back to, okay, but is that something you're actually responsible for? Are you able to respond to those directives? Are you a, that's what responsible means to most people. Okay. And, and this is one of Leighton's talking points is he says that responsibility means able to respond. And that's what it means to most people as if, you know, most people is what is determining what, it, you know, how we should argue and whatnot, which I, I reject that. But back to the point. I don't really care what it means to most people, right? If you're going to build your entire worldview on a foundation of what something means to most people, then you might be getting a few things wrong along the way, right? I'm going to build my worldview and foundations about responsibility and God being in control with what the Bible says, whether or not most people like it. I don't care what most people like. I don't care what most people think is fair. I don't care how most people base all their arguments on intuition and what seems right. These intuitions can change based upon what you know. The more you study the Bible, the more your intuitions about what is what God is allowed to do or can hold you responsible, these things are going to change when you read the Bible, okay? But this definition of responsibility, you know, is 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 really not what responsibility means. Responsibility simply means that you're accountable to someone. Uh, you can look up the definitions of responsibility and see that there's a lot of different ways. You can you can speak of something being responsible for something in the sense of action, like the tornado was responsible for destroying the house. That's not a moral statement. That's just responsibility in terms of having something to do with, right? But we're talking about moral responsibility. Moral responsibility simply deals with the fact that you are accountable to someone, in this case, God. Why? Because he's your creator. And this is another important point that I hammered home in episode one. If you were truly autonomous, autonomous means a law unto yourself. If you were truly free from God and autonomous, then God would actually not have the right to hold you responsible to begin with, right? Responsibility actually doesn't presuppose freedom from God. Responsibility actually presupposes the fact that God has the right to hold you responsible in the first place because he created you. He sustains you. You are never free from God, and it is upon that basis that he can hold you responsible, if you think about it, right? And that's just for the idea of the basic right to hold you responsible. I know that everybody believes that God has the right to hold you responsible. I'm simply pointing out that it's inconsistent for you to demand freedom from God when freedom from God would mean he didn't he wouldn't ultimately have the right to hold you responsible in the first place if you think it through. Now, after taking the time to show that, however, I will say that we can actually go along with Leighton Flowers' definition and still ha not have a problem as Calvinists. Because what do you mean by able to respond? Are you talking about the natural ability to respond or the moral ability to respond, right? So I actually don't have a problem particularly with the idea of being able to respond if we're talking about, once again, what I mentioned earlier, your hypothetical natural faculties, you were, you were able to respond in the sense that you could have done it if you had wanted to, but morally speaking, you didn't want to, and that is the basis of responsibility. It's the moral aspect, the moral inability, okay? So again, we're talking about Pharaoh. Was Pharaoh able to respond? Was Pharaoh able to let the people go in terms of natural faculties? Of course he was, right? He could have walked the people out the gates himself. There was nothing natural, in terms of natural faculties, there was nothing preventing Pharaoh from letting the people go. Except his desire, his want, right? So he was able to respond naturally, but was he able to respond in the moral sense of actually wanting to let the people go? And of course, no, he was not. Right? In the same way Joseph's brothers hated him, they could not speak peaceably to him. Pharaoh hated God and could not let the people go. So once again, guys, ability to do otherwise, or in this case, able to respond. In the ultimate sense, 
Pharaoh was not able to let the people go in the ultimate sense. God said, God himself said he would make sure that it that he would not let the people go. And then God punishes Pharaoh for doing for disobeying his command. Okay? So people can sit there and talk about things like judicial hardening and oh this is why and they try to make exceptions, right? They have this general rule that says, "Well, God can't determine what you do and punish you, but oh look there, I guess we have to accept he did it there, so we'll try to make all these excuses." But come back to the, 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 the primary point here. The case of Pharaoh refutes, directly refutes your false premise that in order to be responsible to God, you must be free from him, right? It directly refutes your false premise that God cannot hold you responsible for things that he determines you to do. Because it literally says, God says, go tell Pharaoh to let the people go. There's the command. But I'll harden his heart so that he won't, right? I'll make sure he will not obey my command and then destroy him and his army. I will punish him for not obeying my command. So he's punishing Pharaoh for doing precisely what God determined him to do. And it's only when you're, again, honest enough to break these down into the separate categories and realize that there's an ultimate sense, which Pharaoh could not have done otherwise, but there is a natural faculty sense in which he could have, hypothetically, only in the fact that he could have walked the people out uh, he could have given the command to escort the people out. He could have let the people go. It's just that morally speaking, he did not want to because he hated God. So when we bring this out to a general discussion of mankind being saved, right? Calvinists are not, Calvinists are not saying that oh, un, all these unsaved people, they want to believe in God, but they just can't because there's something dysfunctional about them, right? There's something broken about them. That's not what we're saying. We're saying that man cannot come to God because they don't want to. They could, hypothetically, in the sense that everybody has the faculty of faith, everybody can believe in, in God, because they, everybody can believe in something. But just because you have that faculty doesn't mean that you're always properly exercising it, right? The only people who believe in God are the people whose hearts have been changed and want to believe in God. So man responds to God all the time. The question is, is the response a positive response or a negative response, okay? Unsaved people are exercising their faith all the time in false idols and false beliefs, right? They are, they are very active in their faith. It's just not being properly used, right? So to say that man is incapable of responding to God positively is not the same thing as saying that man is incapable of responding at all. And this is going to be very important as we uh, move on, that the, the difference between man responding at all, man is always responding to God. The question is, is it a positive response or a negative response? And then we talk about the reasons behind why they're responding in the way that they are, and you'll see that it has to do with the condition of the heart, and it is a moral discussion, not a natural faculty discussion. And so when, when, uh, when a, somebody outside of the Calvinistic world hears Calvinism being pr proffered, um, they, they begin to go, okay, well, how do you, how do you square that circle? How, how do you deal with human responsibility? If God's just predetermined how you will live based upon some irresistible working within you, then... And, and you know, I really don't like the way that's phrased, irresistible working within you, tries to paint this picture where you're going to do what God wants you to do regardless of whether or not you want to do it, right? And once again, um, this paints this picture that you're being irresistibly forced against your will rather than understanding that what Calvinists are saying is that God is in control of all things, including the fact that you want to do it and are willing to do it. So the idea of force, it, you know, has no place, right? It has no place at all. But, you know, that's, that's, that was also covered in episode one, and I'm just pick, you know, nitpicking here. But I, I, I still want to ask, how are you not stuck with God predetermining your life, right? If God had a million 
ways to create you, a million different ways that you would be living and, and choosing and, and, you know, and ending up a million different ways. And it's up to God which of those ways he creates you, then ultimately your life was not up to you. It was up to God. So you got to stop picturing yourself on the ultimate level with God. You are not on the ultimate level with God. You are on the storyline level. Everything about you in God's story, everything about you as a character is determined by God. It's up to him. That doesn't mean you don't make choices in time. Your choices happen. They are real. They occur, right? Just because, as one th- Psalm 139.16 said, just because God has formed your days for you does not mean those days aren't real, right? They're real because God brings them to life. They're real because God makes them real. But, but again, this is me explaining my side. How does the free will side explain that God is choosing when, where, and how to create you, knowing the results, and you're going to try to pretend like, ultimately... It was up to you when it's not. And if, if, you're, if you can finally admit that ultimately it wasn't up to you and the only quote-unquote up to you-ness that you have is on the storyline level, once you recognize that, then, then you lose the debate. So this is why the free will side has to be so strict and strenuous in, in making it clear that they are actually teaching that you are ultimately determining things on God's level. Not that you're God, I'm not accusing you of saying that, but ultimately speaking, it's either you or God, it can't be both. Or it could be both, but if it is both, then there's some sort of moral problem, now now God's evil and he can't hold you responsible, all these false assumptions you've made. But as I've pointed out, it is both. And it can't be any other way than being God as the creator and author and you as the, the, the storyline character, right? How do you hold somebody accountable who's not given the necessary grace or the necessary revelation or the ability, morally speaking, to reply positively to those, those directives that are in Scripture? How do you, how do you deal with that? Um, it's very easy to deal with that. Again, everybody has the natural ability, the faculties, the, the faculties at their disposable, at disposal to respond positively, to believe in God. Everybody, quote-unquote, can in the sense that they all can exercise faith. The way, the, reason, the way in which they cannot do that is because their heart is in a disposition of enmity with God, as Romans 8 says. They hate God, and therefore they cannot submit to his law. They cannot believe in him in the same way that a victim cannot forgive the perpetrator. Right? It's not that they don't have the faculty of forgiveness. It's not like they can't forgive, period. It's just they can't forgive that particular person because of their disposition towards the person. So fallen man cannot believe in God, not because they can't believe, period, but because they don't want to believe in God because of their disposition of hatred towards God. I hope this is being made more and more clear, okay? And um, what, what was the other point there? Held responsible? Um, again, uh, they're responsible because God has chosen to hold them responsible. Um, how does your view not have the same thing? You're going to talk about ability. I'm going to do everything I do in my life. God knew I would do it before he created me. And he could have created me differently. So let's pretend for a moment that I become a mass murderer. God forbid. Right? That was directly tied to and related to when, where, and how God created me. That's unavoidable on a logical basis, right? So if God didn't want me being a mass murderer, he could have created me differently. So ultimately, isn't it God's fault? Don't I get to throw out this, oh, how can God hold me responsible? uh, Ridiculous argument by saying, well, if God would have just created me differently, I mean, that wasn't up to me. That was up to him. He's the one in control of when, where, and how it's created. If he would have just created me 
you know, 50 years earlier on, on the other side of the planet, I would have just been this good little boy my whole life and not been a mass murderer. Why can't I pull up these same ridiculous questions? And, and, and I want answers to these questions. I mean, if you're going to demand that I give answers for God being in control and holding people responsible, you need to give the answers as well. And unfortunately, like I've said, I don't think the other side really thinks or recognizes that they need to answer these questions as well. Their view does not escape it. You don't just get to shout free will, wave the free will magic wand, and call it a day. I've got questions that need answering. Um, and so that's what he's pushing on because she didn't really give an answer to the idea of human responsibility. And, and this is where she's about to get into the conundrum issue. Um, and before she goes there, let's go to the namesake of the Calvinistic worldview, John Calvin himself. Right, she's about to get into the conundrum, and the conundrum is only there because she, unfortunately, like the rest of you, have falsely assumed that responsibility to God presupposes freedom from God. If that claim can be shredded to pieces by verses like Hebrews 1-3 and Acts 17, in God you live and move have your being, in God all things consist, God upholds you by his power at all times, you're never free from God, then that false promise is out of the picture, all of a sudden, God's in control of all things, and he holds people responsible. There is no logical contradiction. The only thing left at the end of the day is you don't like it. Now, he's about to he's about to go on and talk about how Calvin, quote-unquote, struggled with this issue as well. He's going to quote Calvin. Now, I have not read enough of Calvin to know if this is all he said on the issue, okay? If this is all Calvin ever said, because, you know, people's views change, and they might have said this. He might have said this at one time, but expounded later on and, and actually given, you know, uh, explanations along the same lines as that I'm giving. I don't know. I need to read that eventually, but um, if Calvin is going to say, if, if all Calvin ever said was what he's about to say, then I disagree with Calvin. I think I'm free to do that, and I'm not pretending like I'm better than Calvin. And re remember what he said about this. He says, how it was ordained by the foreknowledge and decree of God, what man's future was, without God being implicated as an associate, in the fault as author or approver of transgression, is clearly a secret so much excelling the inside of the human mind that I'm not ashamed to confess ignorance. And I disagree. I think it is one of the most simplest facts, unavoidable facts of reality, that God determined all things, including sin, including sinful actions of men. And to try to sit there and say, I just can't imagine how, how God could do that when the Bible makes it clear and logical necessity makes it clear. You know, again, I, 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 I want to doubt that this is the only thing Calvin ever said on this issue. Okay, so notice what he's doing here. He's confessing ignorance about what? Now, when you're reading Old English kind of, you know, statements from Puritans and, and, uh, and people who spoke different languages, and it's a translated in such a way, sometimes it's hard to follow the logic here. So go back for what he's confessing ignorance on. He's confessing ignorance as to how God could ordain everything, could bring about everything. It's, it's simple. Without being implicated as the fault or the author or approver of transgressions. In other words, I don't know how God's character is not maligned in this system. Okay, so God's character would be maligned if he determined sin, okay? We covered this in episode one, and it's really quite simple, okay? Causation deals with metaphysics. When Hebrews 1.3 says that God upholds the universe by his power, that nothing can occur except by the power of God, that's metaphysics, okay? And if you take that verse and understand it in light of it's always true, then even while you are sinning, or I am sinning, or anybody else is sinning, God's power is at work in upholding our existence. So apparently, God can be the metaphysical cause of sinful actions because they can't even occur apart from his power to begin with and not be evil and not be sinful. 
apparently, according to Acts 17, we can live and move and have our being in God even while we're being evil. And it's not a problem. That's what the Bible teaches. It's only a problem when we start making false assumptions that God's not allowed to do that, right? But according to Hebrews 1, 3 and Acts 17, it can't be any other way. And this is where free will gets very scary as a theological point. Because if you're going to take this assumption that God must be metaphysically disconnected from evil actions so far to the point where you're going to actually say, this is why the definition of free will is autonomous, free will, disconnected, your own first mover, you create your choices out of nothing, all these catchphrases, you're actually going to teach some form of semi-deistic dualism at the end of the day. Because you're going to teach that God was able to create you and let go of you, in contradiction to Hebrews 1.3, let go of you metaphysically so that you can be your own ultimate power, creating your choices out of nothing, as some of them have said, right? And so you're teaching some ideism that God can create self the same things, and you're teaching dualism, that there is more than one ultimate power at work in the universe. And it doesn't matter how much more powerful God is than you. If you're teaching that you are a separate power from God, you are teaching heresy. You are contradicting Hebrews 1, 3, and Acts 17, and Colossians 1. Okay, I know I, I hammer this point home so much, and I repeat it, but it's so critical. It is foundational, worldview-shattering stuff. Okay? So, if John Calvin as great as he was, considered it this unbelievable mystery that God could be the metaphysical cause behind sin and not be a sinner. Hebrews 1.3 proves it, okay? So back to the point. Causation deals with metaphysics. So what is sin? Sin deals with laws. Sin, according to the Bible, is lawlessness. It is the breaking of the law of God. So sin is the description of the actions of God's creatures. Sin has nothing to do with the, the things God has created, you know, the matter and energy as being ontologically evil. Things are not ontologically evil. Nothing that God has created, nothing that God sustains, nothing that lives or moves in God, according to these verses, is in its, is quote-unquote evil by its nature, right? God does, you know, nothing is inherently evil, because evil doesn't deal with material or energy. Evil is a description of the actions of what is happening in creation. Evil is not something that is actually existing in creation in, the, in terms of matter or energy. And once you understand this, everything makes perfect sense, okay? God is not sinning when he causes sin because there's no law that was given to God. God can only be a sinner if God had laws. God, thou shalt not cause sin. Oh, and then God causes sin, so now he's a sinner. But that's not the case. God doesn't have any laws. Nobody exists above God. Nobody created God. Nobody gave him laws. The only things that can sin, by the definition of breaking laws, are God's creatures whom he gave laws to. Right? Angels, man, demons, whatever else, you know. God gave us laws, and we sin when we break those laws. It has nothing at all to do with metaphysics. It, it's not like, well, it's not like there's evil matter out there that God has to metaphysically, you know, distance himself from. Okay? So this is the answer. Right? This is the answer to this unbelievable mystery of how God can be in control of all things, including sin, and not be a sinner. This is the answer. Because causation deals with metaphysics, sin deals with laws. There's no law that says God can't cause sin. There's no law that says God can't control sin. There's no law that says that God can't plan or purpose or predetermine sin. There's no law that says that God must give you free will to hold you responsible. These are all false assumptions on your part, and they're directly refuted by Hebrews 1.3. How do you square your false assumptions with Hebrews 1.3? If God must be metaphysically disconnected from you when you're sinning, 
then he's not upholding your existence by his power, is he? You've contradicted the Bible. Now, moving on to this idea of, well, God is good and talking about his character. God is good. That statement is not the same thing as pointing out at something and saying, oh, look, that's good. Okay? When you say, oh, that tree is good, or this, that person is good, or that, you're measuring them by a standard external to them. So you have the standard on one hand, and you have the, the person or thing in the other hand, and now you're doing a comparison, and you're saying this person is either, not, is either good or not good. That is not the case with God. God is not, it's not like you have God in one hand and this external standard to God in the other hand, and you're seeing if God measures up, and since he does, he's good. When you get to God's level, the ultimate level, you reach a point where the statement that God is good is of a different category, okay? It's of a different, you're saying something different, because he is the standard. He is the standard of what is good. It's not him compared to a standard, he is the standard, God is good, and therefore everything he does is good, by definition. He's the one who makes the rules. Any action he takes is good, by definition. Okay, And so God can plan and purpose our actions, which might be sinful, and yet be doing a good thing in the process because he has a good purpose in our evil actions. Okay, this is all start, I hope this is all starting to make sense. Okay, So we don't compare God. The statement God is good is not the same thing as saying you or I are good because we are being compared to a standard external to us, but God is the standard, okay? So this is why God can, it, it was good for God to plan and purpose sin. He had a good purpose in all of it, and in fact, it's his purpose. That's why it's good. He is the standard of what is good. So this is the Calvinistic answer that I've been going through here to the problem of evil. The problem of evil is something that all Christians are faced with and all Christians need to give, give an answer to. And you need to ask yourself the question, who provides a better biblical and logical answer to the problem of evil, is it what I just laid out, or is it, you know, with Hebrews 1.3 and, and everything like that, or is it just this free will? Well, God gave us free will, and, and, and again, go listen to episode one for all the, the myriad of questions that that raises in and of itself. Well, you know, God knew what you would do with your free will before he gave it to you. Why isn't he responsible? God could have stopped anything you did with your free will after he gave it to you. Why isn't he responsible? Questions, questions, questions. Just saying free will does not answer the problem of evil, okay? So, I just want to understand how you would understand evil in light of Hebrews 1.3 and Acts 17, right? God upholds the existence of all sinners at all times. Every moment and the most heinous sins being committed could not even be committed apart from God's willing choice to provide the power necessary by which those terrible things could happen, right? And he doesn't have to provide that power. He chooses to. So, how can God willingly choose to exert power necessary so that evil come to pass and yet not make God evil? How does it not, as Leighton says here, malign his character? The only answer is the answer I just gave. The only answer is the Calvinist answer, right? It's, it's the only answer, if you think about it. Everybody else is going to be stuck appealing to mystery, okay? So I'm, I've given the answers. I've shown how God can be the metaphysical cause of all things, including evil, yet not be evil. You don't get to give my answers, because if you give my answers, you completely undermine every false assumption and false premise that you've ever leveled against Calvinism in the first place, okay? So you're just going to have to basically appeal to mystery. And what's interesting is if you were to take the same false assumptions and the rules that you set up and assume and, and a, that you bring against Calvinism and the idea of evil, try explaining your false assumptions in light of Hebrews 1.3. And if you, if you were consistent, even your view would make God evil, okay? Because if God is upholding sinners at all times, even while they're sinning, 
according to your false standard that if God is determining that people sin, if God is, is, is the cause behind sin, if God is the one making it possible or ensuring that it comes about, if Hebrews 1.3 is true, even in your view, that would make God evil. But of course, we know that it doesn't for the reasons that I've laid out. That's what John Calvin is saying. That's the conundrum John Calvin himself admits. He even says, I daily so mediate on these mysteries of his judgments that curiosity to know anything more does not attract me. And there are quotes from Piper and MacArthur and Sproul who virtually all said the same thing. Okay, so this brings me to another point, you know, of my opinion on, on why even mainstream Calvinists like Sproul or Piper might appeal to mystery on certain things. And I think it's because they've, again, they've also bought into the same false assumptions, right? Um, these unbiblical false assumptions like responsibility to God presupposes freedom from God. God can't be metaphysically connected to evil uh, you know, actions and all these sorts of false assumptions that the Bible does not teach. Um, this is why these people say that. And, and many, you know, many Calvinists assuming these things, and, and they'll, they'll start denying things like, oh, hard determinism. We've got to, Calvinists deny hard determinism. And if you affirm hard determinism, you're a hyper-Calvinist. And, and so they, they present this quote-unquote softer version, which, you know, it tries to, you know, it tries to basically say, you're not free from God, but you're free from other causes and effects. And, you know, it's like this localized mini version of free will which I once again reject because, you know, I in, instead of trying to make my views appeal to more people, I'm just going to tell it like it is and just see how far that goes. You know what I mean? So I think that's, I think the reason that, no offense to people like Piper and Sproul, the reason that they might take a softer approach and appeal to mystery on certain issues is because they don't want to offend people. They don't want to, um, you know, scare people away. You know, it seemed too too extreme or too absurd. That would be my guess, and well, I'm just going to leave it at that. That's this is the conundrum. This is the uh, atenomy, as J.I. Packer points out, uh, says it is. Um, it is a paradox. MacArthur calls it, as we just recently went over in a, in a previous broadcast just a couple of a weeks ago. And, and so he's bringing up another prominent Calvinist author. Um, and, and no matter how many famous Calvinists he quotes, I'm I'm just going to disagree with them and re outright reject the idea that God's meticulous control and determination of all things, including sin, is a conundrum or a mystery or a paradox or any other fancy word that you want to use as an excuse to believe contradictory things, okay? The things that I have addressed and explained are not contradictory. They are only contradictory when you presuppose something false, like responsibility to God presupposes freedom from God. It is this false assumption found nowhere in the Bible or in logic, in fact, contradicted by logic, as I pointed out, but... It, it is this false assumption based purely on emotion and, and they'll sometimes they'll even say intuition, which causes these Calvinists, even these promised Calvinists, to use the words like paradox or conundrum, okay? And once you disprove these false assumptions and explain the things that the, the way I have with scripture and logic, there's no contradiction to begin with. The contradiction is manufactured by both sides, unfortunately, and so I'm here to call out both sides and expose this false assumption for what it is. Yeah. Um, that this is the conundrum, this is the problem of the Calvinistic worldview, and it's exactly what Ali is about to uh, reflect on here as well. There is a balance that I think a lot of people get confused on when you hear Calvinist, and you hear preordained, you think, oh, well, you don't believe in any free will at all, and that's not true. Now, I will say there is what kind of seems like a conundrum or a conflict between personal responsibility and the absolute sovereignty of God. So we believe that God is absolutely sovereign over everything. There is no point whatsoever where he sits back and he just lets things happen or says, oh, whoops, like I didn't see that coming. We believe in the absolute sovereignty of God over everything. And yet the Bible is very clear that people have personal responsibility. 
So there she is laying out the, the, both the facts, right? The Bible certainly teaches both of those things. She's right, right? The Bible teaches God created all things. He sustains all things at all moments. He is in full control and has absolute power over all things at all times. He has it all planned out, purposes and all of it, all the way down the line. And the Bible also teaches that God gives man commands and holds them responsible for obeying those commands, right? The Bible teaches both. So what's the problem? If you leave it right there, there's no problem. There's just, well, I don't really like that. Well, that just doesn't seem right to me. That doesn't seem very fair, right? Why, but, but why call it a conundrum or a paradox? If you leave it there, there is no problem, right? Why can't you just say that that's the way that things are and then address the false assumptions as they come in, right? Why can't that just be a plain aspect of reality that we accept, biblically speaking? God controls all things and holds us responsible. But it is because of the hidden false assumption Responsibility to God presupposes freedom from God. This false assumption that everyone brings to discussion, which makes these two biblical teachings appear to contradict. Right? But if you don't introduce this false assumption in the first place, then there is in fact no contradiction whatsoever. God is in full control and he holds people responsible, plain and simple. Right? And I also don't like when Calvinists say, Oh well, we don't outright reject free will. We, you know, as she as she said, but as I said before, the only definition of free will that anybody cares about, the reference point for freedom must be God, okay? I can point to all sorts of things that I'm free from. So if I move my reference point away from God and start talking about how I'm free from, uh, you know, people on the other side of the planet or free from this or free from that, nobody cares. That doesn't prove I have free will. If, if you're, That proves I have a different, you know, reference point of, of quote-unquote free will. I'm free from them. But in this theological discussion, the only thing anyone ever cares about is freedom from God. Is God determining your choices and your actions, yes or no? So since Calvinists don't believe in freedom from God ever, or at least shouldn't, right? You should, you should outright deny free will. We should. And this is why I just outright deny that we have free will. And then when the questions come in, I answer them. But I don't try to move the reference point for freedom away from God onto, well, we're just doing what we want, these sorts of things, because it confuses people, it's misleading, and although those things are true, that's the outplay of whether or not you have free will. That's not how you prove you have free will. You prove you have free will by discussing God as a reference point. And the three foundational verses that I quote every single time, Hebrews 1, 3, Acts 17, Colossians 1, these verses prove that you are never free from God. Okay? I, the Christians believe if you don't accept Christ, which accept is kind of a word that we don't really use in Calvinism, but that there is punishment. There's eternal punishment from that, for that. There's eternal separation from God. And so you are held to the consequences of your sin, to the consequences of the life that you live, and yet God is sovereign over all of that. Okay. Right, and so, you know, Layton's about to jump in here, but, but you know, she didn't really answer the false assumption, right? The conundrum, right? If she's going to say there's a conundrum, she needs to address the conundrum. She didn't, right? She didn't address the conundrum, quote-unquote, but what she says is true, all right? God will hold us responsible and punish sin, right? And God's in control of all of it. Those are two true things. But she does not actually uh, address the false assumption that responsibilities to God presupposes freedom from God. And um, the reason she doesn't is because she has the same false assumption, right? Otherwise, she would just say, well, the Bible teaches these things, you know? So what's the problem? And um, I know that people think there's problems, and I'm happy to provide answers as I'm trying to do. But... I'm not going to buy into the same false assumption that the Bible knows nothing of. The Bible not, not only knows nothing of it, it, it's one thing if the Bible just didn't say, you know, responsibility presupposes freedom. The Bible actually directly contradicts it by saying you're never free from God. 
So it's a double whammy. Okay. So um, let's move on. You know, he's about to ask how to square that circle, um, and we'll get there. But let's go over what she just said, okay? So she first hits on free will. She says, no, no, we do believe in free will. Now, remember, Calvinists believe in compatibilistic free will, not libertarian free will. Now, free will is typically talked of in a libertarian sense, meaning uh, you have the ability of self-choice. In other words, you're self-determined. Self-determined, okay? You are your own first mover. You create your choices out of nothing. These are all phrases that have been used. And I, my biggest question for the free will side is how you square the idea of you being a self-determined entity with Hebrews 1.3 that says God always upholds your existence by his power. Right? You're going to say you're free from God when you make choices. The Bible says you're never free from God. You need to do, you know, you've got a lot of explaining to do. Uh, your choices are not determined by factors beyond your control or by factors outside of yourself. In other words, God is not determining uh, certain factors to make you only be able to choose A and not B or C or D or any other option. Okay. God is not determining you to only be able to choose one thing or the other. Again, in the ultimate sense, I've already proven why this is in fact the case. And both sides are stuck with it. Both sides have God determining that you can't do anything other than what you do. Both sides have that. Both sides, not just Calvinist, both sides. So the, the, again, the answer is, in what sense are, were you able to do otherwise? It's not in the ultimate sense. It's only in the hypothetical sense. And so... The other thing he brings up here is just the idea of free will in general, and we covered this extensively in episode one. We covered why it is impossible for God to give you free will in the, per in the first place. Okay, He just comes out and says that free will is freedom from God, God is not determining your choices, you're self-determined, you're free from God. But he's never going to prove that from Scripture, because the Bible does not lay that foundation out. The Bible never, ever, ever says that you're free from God, for even for one nanosecond of your existence. Are you ever free from God? Free will is a giant false assumption brought to the Bible. Okay, and again, it's a double whammy. The Bible not only ever never says that, it says the opposite. It says you're never free from God. So when it comes to free will, you can't possibly be more wrong, right? So my approach to this whole, all of these topics is not the standard Calvinistic, quote-unquote, compatibilistic freedom approach, where I just, I move the reference point for freedom away from God, and I try to get the other side to agree that, you know, we act on our desires, and we do what we want, but of course they already believe that. Both sides believe that you're doing what you want. So that reference point for freedom is completely irrelevant to the ultimate point. I attack the source of the problem, which is the false assumption that you can somehow be free from God in the first place. I attack the source of the problem, right? Free will being freedom from God, and I disprove it with scripture and logic. Okay, so when most of us think about libertarian choice, we think about contra-causal choice, ability to choose other than what we chose. So if somebody rejected Christ, then the contra-causal ability would have been to have accepted Christ. Um, in other words, they, they had the capacity, um, both morally and physically, not just the natural capacity, but both morally, they were able to humble themselves and confess their sin, or to suppress the truth and unrighteousness and grow hardened and calloused to that truth. They had either option, on our view, on... on so free will is the, the moral and natural ability to do otherwise? So how do you answer then Joseph's brothers when it says they could not speak peaceably? The Bible says they could not, right? I've, I've, shown, how, I've shown how naturally they could have, natural faculty-wise they could have, but morally speaking, they could not have because the Bible says they could not. But according to you, they could. They had free will means they have both the natural and moral. So I guess either you're wrong or they didn't have free will. Which is it? Now, and here's the problem is he, he paints 
the ability to do otherwise, and he mixes, and he just says both the moral and natural ability. But he doesn't justify, as I've laid out, the differences between those two things, right? He throws out those words because Calvinists talk about those things, and that's how we use. That's how we explain these things. But he just says, "Oh, we we believe that we had both the natural and moral ability to do those things." But as I've already pointed out, first and foremost, ability to do otherwise for both sides is strictly hypothetical. Even on the free will side, God knew what you would do. He created you knowing you would, what you would do. He created you, and by creating you, he ensured that you would do what you would do, and you ultimately cannot do otherwise, right? That's it's unavoidable. In the ultimate and actual sense, you could not have done other than what you did, and you cannot do other than what you will do, because you don't exist on the ultimate level. Only God does. That is unavoidable no matter which side of the argument you're on. You're on. So, so for him to say, well, you can do otherwise— can you can you justify that, please? How can you, in the ultimate sense, do otherwise? He, he just claims it. He doesn't explain it. He you know he claims it, but he doesn't explain it. I want you to justify you being able to do otherwise in the ultimate sense. But if you admit it's not in the ultimate sense, you're talking about some other sense. Well, you need to explain what other sense you're talking about. So again, the only sense in which you being able to do otherwise makes any sense is again the hypothetical means to have done otherwise. Right? I can pick up an object. It's a bottle of Coke right here, right? I can pick up that bottle of Coke. I just did it, right? But that is not the same thing as saying, am I morally able to pick that up? What if that thing was a spider and I have arachnophobia? I can physically pick up a spider, but if I have arachnophobia, my disposition towards the spider is one of extreme fear and it's going to prevent me from picking up the spider, right? Right? I can pick up a knife or a gun, right? But I might be morally unable to actually use those things to commit murder because of the disposition I have towards particular people, I would hope. <laughs> but you see my point. There's a difference between natural and moral ability. And for him to just come along and claim, well, we believe in free will, and that means both natural and moral ability to do, you know, to do it, either or, there's, there's no justification offered here. So, um, again, ultimately, we cover this in episode one, ultimately, when you look back in time, you did what you did for specific reasons. You did what you did for specific reasons, including wanting and desiring to do it. And in order for you to have actually done otherwise, the situation would have had to have been different. Since it could not have been different, the ability to do otherwise, once again, is limited to the hypothetical sense. And so let's move on to this idea of morally able. Okay, This is something that both scripture and the reality we experience refute him on. Right? If we were, once again, to ask mothers if they could murder their children, they most most of them, would insist that they're unable to do it, right? They use the word unable, period. And and this this inability that I explained, as I explained it already, is a moral inability, not a natural one. And if you were to insist, as Leighton does here, that, well, you are in fact morally able to do both, you know, morally and naturally able. If you were gonna, if you're gonna t tell a mother who says to your face, "I cannot murder my child," and you're gonna insist to that mother, "No, actually, you can. You are morally able to murder your child." those mothers would get extremely offended by that, right? Because their entire basis for their inability to murder their children is the great disposition of love that they have for them. And for you to suggest that they are not just naturally able to do it, but also morally able to murder their children would be for you to bring, it would be you bringing their love into question, right? You would be questioning their love rather than affirming their love, and it would offend them. If you're going to affirm their love, then you would say, okay, you're not able to murder your children. That's a good thing. It's a good thing that you have a moral inability in this particular instance, 
But for you to insist that free will means that you have the moral ability to do these things um, means that you would be questioning the very dispositions of, of love that are preventing these mothers from, from ever even thinking of doing these things, right? And when we're talking about dispositions, it's important to recognize that dispositions can change, right? So just because someone might not be morally able to do something right now does not mean they won't be morally able to do something tomorrow or, you know, a month from now. Um, and it doesn't mean they'll always be morally unable to do it, right? Dispositions can change. But once again, the reason that they change is because of deterministic factors as well. And so th this is why free will sounds great on the fly. It sounds like something, you know, what we relate to on a daily daily basis. But when you just dissect the claims and flesh out what is actually being said, free will is well, it's always going to be torn apart by scripture, logic, and reality, and everything else. When you actually start asking question after question after question and breaking these things down, free will turns out turns from something that sounds good on the fly into something that makes a mess out of reality. Allie's view on compatibilistic Calvinism, uh, which is the free will that she's talking about, which is not free will at all, as far as I can tell. It, and I agree, it's not free will at all. It's, it's, it's this. It's, you're free to do what you want, okay? So you're free as long as you're doing what you want. Right. So a lot of Calvinists just move the reference point for freedom away from God onto doing what you want, okay? So I think everybody agrees that you do what you want, and you're free in that sense. The problem is nobody cares, right? So we've already sort of explained this. Both sides believe you're doing what you want, um, but that's not what matters. What matters is, is what you want determined by you or God? Right? Is God, are you free from God ultimately? Is God the one who is in determinative control of even what you want? And the Calvinist says yes, the free will proponent says no. Now, the problem with that view is that what your wants are, are determined by something outside of yourself, i.e. God's decree. So God has determined what you will ultimately want by your nature, either from birth, you will hate God because that's not a factor within your control. You're born a hater of God under Calvinism. You can't control that. that. Yeah, you can't control when, where, and how you're created. So, again, how are you not stuck with that same question? You're stuck answering the same question, right? But this, this demonstrates perfectly why I consider that the road that most Calvinists go down when they start talking about free will by moving the reference point away from God onto doing what they want, they actually end up accomplishing nothing because the other side will just move the reference point back to God where it belongs in the first place, right? Which is what, which is what Leighton just did here. Now, the problem with that view is that what your wants are, are determined by something outside of yourself, i.e. God's decree. Right, so when Calvinists move the reference point for freedom away from God onto your doing what you want, the other side comes along and just moves it back from doing what you want onto God, where it belongs, right? It's what people care about to begin with when we're talking about this theological discussion. So he just moved the reference point back to God where it belongs and said, well, you might be doing what you want, but even what you want is determined by God, and he's right, right? He's not just right, He's right for doing this because it's where the reference point for freedom belongs to begin with. So, so, and, and this is, the problem is, this is where most Calvinists will retreat into mystery, right? And they'll be made to look very bad when they start talking about these issues, and they'll look very inconsistent because nothing was actually accomplished. So they're questioned on God determining what you're doing, and then they say, oh, but you're doing what you want. And the other side comes back and says, but even what you want was determined. And then they go, yeah, I guess so, so we'll just call it a mystery, Right? This is the problem: is I don't do that. I don't move the reference point. I don't move the reference point away from God in the first place. I leave it on God and say, "You're never free from God." Let's start there. So, compatibilistic freedom, while entirely true, right? It is true as a concept. You are doing what you want, and if you want to call that freedom, great. The problem is nobody cares. 
it does not address the root of the issue. And I don't want Calvinists to misunderstand me. And they're going to they're gonna say that, well, uh, we act upon our desires, we do things freely in this sense. That is most certainly true. But proving or showing this to be true does not disprove free will. It does not disprove freedom from God. Okay? So this is the approach that I take with compatibilism. I don't have a problem with the concept. I have a problem with the false understanding that going down that road actually addresses or answers any of the problems being you know, asked or discussed in the first place. And compatibilism can also cause a lot of confusion because when you, when you, can, when you Google compatibilism to try to get a definition for people who haven't studied the context of what we're talking about, you'll, you'll find that it literally says that compatibilism is the idea that free will and determinism are compatible. But if, if free will is freedom from God and determinism is God determines all things, then that's a contradiction, right? So we have to ask, when you say that free will and, and determinism are compatible, what do you mean by free will? And that's where the Calvinist is forced to admit that they've moved the reference point for freedom away from God onto something else. And yeah, those are, yeah, you're doing what you want and God's determined what you want to do. I guess that's compatible. Okay, but w what have you accomplished from the other side? Because there, the other side isn't questioning that we do what we want. Well, what they're questioning is, is even what you want determined by God? And the Calvinist answer is, of course, yes. And again, this idea of you're, you were born that way, you can't control that, that's true of both sides. You didn't choose to be created. You didn't choose when, where, and how you, be, you would be created. You didn't choose which of the millions and billions of ways and lives in which God could have created you. That was all up to God, and you're still stuck discussing and answering how your view does not have the idea of God determining and choosing your life, your choices, and holding you responsible at the end of the day. You just, you're just born that way because of the sin of Adam, because of the natural, quote-unquote, natural result of the fall, which, by the way, when a Calvinist says the natural, he's just, that's just another word for the decree of God, because even nature is all decreed by God. And so, uh, yes, that's correct. When we say all things, we mean all things, including nature, including, you know, anything you want to look at. And that, once again, one of the, one of the biggest false assumptions that come against Calvinism is they, they hear us say all things, God determines all things, but then it makes their mind jump to specific things. And then they have emotional reactions to those specific things, and they forget that we said all things. So they start making these assumptions about, oh, well, that means this must not matter, or that must not matter, or what comes before it, or surrounds it doesn't matter. The point is, if God determined it all, then it all matters. Okay? If they just say, well, that's the natural result. Just remember that the natural result is what God has decreed. So God yes. has decreed for all people to, God, to be born. God has not just decreed certain ends. He's decreed how those ends come about. All things, right? Because of sin, the sin of Adam, to be born in a condition where they cannot be reconciled, where they cannot come to God's appeal to be reconciled from that fall. Because they don't want to. Not that they can't believe in things. Not that they can't believe in God in the sense of having the faculty. Not that they can't love, period. They can love God if they wanted to. The problem is, as the result of the fall of Adam, a fallen, sinful heart hates God by nature. Yes, they're born that way. Um, and, and, you know, yes, God is in control of all those things, okay? So you can, yes, it's true that everything, even the natural, quote-unquote natural things, are planned and determined and caused by God, right? But that does not get, that does not mean that you get to ignore uh, what is going on. Again, this goes back to the ultimate, right? The ultimately, um, God is the ultimate reason anything happens, ultimate reason, but he's not the only reason anything happens, Okay. There's a, there's a big difference between ultimate and only, okay? And, and 
God is once again in the transcendent position as the author, the creator, the sustainer. We should not be ignoring all of the storyline level reasons behind why things come about or happen the way that they happen. Okay, Just because God is ultimately behind all those things does not mean that those things on the storyline level are not also reasons behind why things are happening and how things are connected. Okay. That, that's by God's decree. And so they're born in that condition for factors beyond their control. They, they can't help the fact that they're born that way. Can't help the fact that they're born that way. Yeah. Um, can you help the, the Can you help the way that you were born? I think I've made this point all the way through. You didn't choose to be created. You didn't choose when to be created, where to be created, how to be created. I mean, we all know the verse where God says, who makes people seeing or deaf or blind? It's me. I, I do all these things. So, of course, God creates you in a particular condition. And that wasn't up to you wasn't under your control. I mean, you want to sit there and start talking about fairness and, oh, I need to be in control on this and that. Tell that to a blind person who's born blind. Were they, was that up to them? Right? God didn't have to create them blind. He didn't create me blind. He didn't create you blind. Most of you blind, I would hope. But he has created people who are blind. Was God wrong for doing that? Right? And, and this ridiculous... It's a true statement to say that those are the results of a fallen creation. Yes, it's the results of the sins of Adam. Yes, but that's a true statement. But that does not get you out of your false assumption that it's not under the control of God because God didn't have to create people that way. I mean, if, if blindness and deafness are just the, the unfortunate results of sin, then why isn't everybody blind? Why isn't everybody deaf? Right? The point is, God is in control of who is and who is not born that way. He openly and blatantly declares it in the Old Testament by saying, who is the one who does these things? Is it not I, the Lord? And yet here you are talking about, well, if they're just born that way, dot, 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 insert, you know, whatever emotional thing here, and that's supposed to be an argument against Calvinism, that's something any Christian needs to deal with. God creates people in certain ways, certain times, certain circumstances, with certain disabilities even. And this whole idea of, well, that's okay because God can wonderfully use those disabilities. And yes, he does, but not in the way that you think. This is, again, the difference between God reacting to everything, reacting to things that he doesn't control, versus planning and purposing things. When you look into creation and you see people with disabilities glorifying God, that is not because God made the best out of an unfortunate situation. That is God creating those people purposefully with those conditions so that he can use them in that way. This is, this is worldview breaking, shattering. This is worldview differences right here, guys. God is not reacting to a failed, unfortunate circumstance and just making the best out of it. Everything that comes to pass is planned and purpose by him, including how people are born, what condition they're born. And while we might not all be born blind or deaf, we, all, we are certainly all born as fallen sinners who by nature hate God and do not want to come to God unless our hearts are changed. And they are ultimately condemned for something they have absolutely no control over. You aren't condemned to hell because you weren't able to, in the ultimate position, determine things to be differently. You're condemned to hell for what happens in time. You're condemned for what happens on the storyline level. This goes back to responsibility. You're held responsible on the storyline level for obeying or not obeying the commands of God. And whether or not God is ultimately in control of whether or not you obey them, is, is irrelevant to what responsibility actually pertains to, okay? So as I just said, just because God is the ultimate reason behind something does not mean that there are not other reasons behind that same thing. 
So saying you have ultimately no control over, over something, both sides are stuck with that. But and, and good luck explaining. Once again, I'm claiming that both sides are stuck with that. I'm giving the answers from my side. I want to wish you luck on the free will side in explaining how you are ultimately in control of anything. You can, it can't be logically done, right? You can just shout free will over and over and over and over and hope that people don't ask questions. But I'm asking you to explain how you are in ultimate control of anything, right? And to confuse to to confuse that uh, ultimate with with only, and in the same sentence say therefore you have absolutely no control over over these things, is just committing the fallacy of what I, of what I just mentioned. It's ignoring the storyline level reasons, and 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 as I pointed out, the only control quote unquote control that you have over anything is on the storyline level, right? It's it's the control that God has determined that you will have. Okay, if I pick up an object once again bottle of coke here i picked it up right i now have control over it i'm waving it around it is at my my mercy right my will um that's true what just happened right is true regardless of whether god was in control of me doing that or not god can determine that i'd be in control of an object by picking it up as i just did here coke bottle and just because he's determined my control over it does not mean that my control is not real it's as real as it can be on the storyline level, right? It's real because God makes it real. He creates it. He brings it about. He's the one who gives meaning and purpose and reality to what he creates. And it only becomes a problem when you falsely assume that your level of control must also transcend creation, transcend reality, and be brought up to God's level on the ultimate level, which free will proponents are going to have to do if you're going to try to justify that you have any sort of ultimate control over anything, right? It's your false assumption that both things can't be true. You're falsely assuming that God can't be an ultimate transcendent control of my finite storyline level created control. Right? And you falsely assumed it must be either me controlling things or God controlling things, that it can't be both. And this is the false assumption that is completely obliterated when you consider God properly as the divine transcendent author, the creator and the sustainer. As soon as you consider God as transcendent, and not just another thing that exists alongside us on our level, then this false assumption vanishes and is completely disproven. And the fog lifts and everybody should be able to see how this is actually playing out because these false assumptions unfortunately arise when we try to draw humanistic analogies from one human being to another, right? So of course, on the storyline level, from one created thing to the next thing, person to person, you to me, you might say, well, either I'm controlling something or you are. Right, And that can be a true statement on the storyline level. But that's because we're both on the same level. We didn't create each other. We don't sustain each other. Neither of us transcends the other. Neither of us relies upon the other for our existence. Right? But to take a comparison like that where, yes, it's either you controlling something or me, and, and tr trying to apply that to God and his relationship to what he's created is logically fallacious. Because God is our, God is our creator. He is our sustainer. He transcends both you and me and every other created thing. We all rely upon his power for continued existence. And his being in control of all of it is not at all contradic a contradiction to you having control over things within creation. You don't have ultimate control, but you have whatever level of control God has determined that you will have. And just because God has determined that you will have that control, like me picking up this Coke bottle, does not mean that that control is not real. Just because you are not on God's level does not mean you are not real. So this is why it is wrong to say that you have absolutely no control over things. You have whatever level of control God has determined you to have, and just because God is in ultimate control of your storyline level control does not mean 
that you have absolutely no control. You might have ultimately no control, and I've proven that to be from both sides. And it's still up to the free will side to show how they can can explain how you could possibly have ultimate control. I'm still waiting on that response. But on the storyline level, you do have control. You have whatever control God has determined that you will have. They're born as a God-hater, and God has passed over them. God has rejected them before they were ever born or did anything good or bad. In other words, God is not looking through the quarters of time on Calvinism and seeing how good or bad they are and therefore making his choice. Right. God does not look, look into the future to see what people will do with their self-determined, self-caused wills in Calvinism. You're right. But I question whether or not your implication there is that in your view, he does. That in your view, God does look into the future, seeing what people will do, and, and, and base his decisions upon what people will do. Now, this, this, this was covered more in both episode one and two. Uh, primarily episode two, we talked about how God can know the future to begin with, the fact that God can only know things that he determined because the only things that come to pass are things that God brings to pass by his power, Hebrews 1.3. If you make a logical application of Hebrews 1.3 and Acts 17, in God we live and move have our being, it's always true. God upholds your existence, it's always true. You will see that it is only possible for God to know things about things that he has something to do with because anything that exists, God has something to do with according to Hebrews 1.3. So God does not get to look over at things he has nothing to do with and know or foreknow things about them. Um, the fact that we can do that demonstrates not that we can do something God, uh, you know, that we can do something that God can do. We can do something that God can't do precisely because we're not God. We can look over at things that we have nothing to do with, and that proves that we aren't God because we didn't create those things, we didn't sustain those things, and importantly, any knowledge that we have about those things is going to be learned, it's going to be observed, it's going to be taken in. And all Christians would reject the idea that God takes in knowledge or learns knowledge. All Christians are going to say God knows it inherently. Covered that in episode two. The Calvinist position is the only position that can just justify the claim that God inherently has his knowledge. He inherently has it by nature of being creator, planner, purposer, and determiner. He determines what he knows from within himself by planning creation out from start to finish. He does not learn what he knows from outside himself by considering, or in this case, as he says, Looking down did them before they were ever born or did anything good or bad. In other words, God is not looking through the corridors of time on Calvinism and seeing how right. good or bad they are. God is not looking down the corridors of time in Calvinism. That is very true. But the implication seems to be that you believe God is looking down the corridors of time. Uh, I don't know if he actually believes that. I don't think he does. But when you say, well, Calvinists don't believe that, you kind of imply that it, we should be believing that. No. Um, but, but how would you describe or explain how God is knowing things of things he has nothing to do with, namely your free will choices, your self-determining, your self-causing. How does God know those things without learning them? We covered this was the entire basis of episode two. Please go listen to it. And you'll see that you can't just say God's God so he knows it. You have to be able to logically justify what God can know in the first place. But his choice is completely and come totally of himself. In other words, yes. it's what arbitrary means. They don't like the word arbitrary, but it's that's what it means. Well, it can mean that. You don't just get to say that's what it means. There are multiple definitions of the word arbitrary, and the reason we object to its use is because these days, right, the word arbitrary means random. These days. So if you can point a couple hundred years back and show that ar what arbitrary means is that the king could arbitrarily, meaning without reasons beyond him, make decisions and, and, and do this or that, yeah, that's, then God is arbitrary in, in the sense of ultimate ultimateness, right? But God is not ult not arbitrary in the sense of what most people consider it today, randomness. Everything God does is for specific purposes, okay? 
to, to make a choice without any outside influence whatsoever, but for Correct. his own glory, for his own good, for his own self-interest, he makes a choice to, to irresistibly, effectually change some people and leave all other people to go their own direction. Right. So God has a plan and purpose in everything that comes to pass. And, and I don't know why he just tries to set that up as a terrible thing. Um, we, we as Calvinists, we man up to the reality that there are people who go to heaven and there's people who go to hell. God didn't have to create the people that went to hell. He chose to do so, knowing they would end up there. And so we make sense out of that and actually try to work that into our worldview instead of trying to push it away and make excuses. We work it into our worldview by that saying, yes, God must then have a purpose, even in the people who go to hell. It is the demonstration of his just condemnation, punishment against sin, um, demonstrates, you know, there's purposes in all things, even the bad stuff, right? And so this is, once again, God as the divine author was not reactively planning anything. Again, episode one and two, we show how since the only things that can exist are things that God creates, and the only things that can continue to exist or come to pass are things that God sustains after he creates, then the idea that God can be considering future things that are not the results of his own actions to create or sustain is logically absurd. God cannot look into the quote-unquote future because the only future that can exist is one that he himself brings about. Long story short, this is not the point of this episode. And to be God-haters as they were born, okay? And God-haters as they were born. How do you not have on your side God creating people he knows will only ever hate God and end up in hell? Ultimately speaking, they didn't choose to be created. God could have created them differently. God creates people who will do nothing other than be God-haters and end up in hell. You're stuck with that too. So when she says, yeah, we believe in free will, what she means is compatibilistic free will, which is no less deterministic than hard determinism. Uh, i.e. modernism.com, that's the way they describe it. And he's it. right. No less, hard no less deterministic than hard determinism. He's absolutely right. Compatibilism, although true, is no less deterministic than hard determinism. He's absolutely right. And any Calvinist who tries to use compatibilism to disprove hard determinism or shy away from hard determinism and take on this idea of quote-unquote soft determinism, you're getting away from, at some point, you're going to be sacrificing the control that God has. And Calvinists should never be doing that. So this is why... I don't call it free will at all. I stick with the free will that everybody, the definition of free will with the reference point of freedom being God. That's the only thing people care about. I attack the problem at the source and, and square it off from the start. And I don't take detours. I don't move the reference point around and start arguing about definitions of what free will means so that I can try to convince people that it's really not that bad if you look at it this way. I want to take their their emotional reactions to how quote-unquote bad my position is, how terrible Calvinism is, because you don't have free will, and attack it head-on. That's what I want to do. They are born as God-haters by nature, i.e., according to God's decree. Their desire is such that they could not do anything but hate God unless God steps in and changes their nature. Correct. And makes them want him. Makes Correct. them have a new nature where they do want him. And then those are the elect ones. Those are the ones who come. Now, so that's, that's a fairly accurate representation, but he's putting it out there like it's a terrible thing. Once again... Being born unable to do anything but hate God. If God creates somebody knowing that's all they'll ever do is hate him and end up in hell, then when God creates those people, they are born unable to do anything other than what God knew what they would do. Namely, hate God and end up in hell. You're stuck with the same problem. How do you answer the question? I answer the question by saying God has a purpose in all those things. According to you, God doesn't have a purpose in people hating him and going to hell. So you've got a lot of answers that need questions that need answers. And most of the time, you're just going to appeal to mystery. You hear that and you go, oh my goodness, that, that seems very uh, 
sí. uh, contradictory to hold somebody responsible for something that's beyond their control. That's almost like racism. Okay, now this is going to be fun. Listen to this. And, and again, I know that's a touchy subject, but I don't hold somebody accountable for their skin color or judge them or treat them badly for their skin color. Why? Because that's a factor beyond their control that, that detests us. But if Calvinism is true, how does a non-elect person have any more control over his natural condition than a, a, a person has over the color of their skin? Because again, their natural condition has nothing to do with broken faculties of faith or love. It's not like, well, fallen man just w really wants to love God, but they can't because their love box is broken. No, they love all sorts of things. They just don't love God. That's the point. So when you're going to start talking about racism and the idea of the color of people's skins, people couldn't, people can't change the color of their skin even if they wanted to, right? But people can love God if they wanted to. That's the difference. And, and, and again, you're born, he keeps saying it over and over, you're born this way by nature. You're born God-haters by nature. Let's just pretend Calvinism doesn't exist for a moment. I've repeated this a hundred times already, but so is he. He keeps repeating it. This idea of you are born X, Y, and Z is something both sides are stuck with. I just don't understand how people can sit there and think that you don't have to answer the same question, okay? How is, how is you saying, well, you're born a God-hater by nature, as Calvinists say, how is that ultimately any different than what you're forced to admit? That you're born in such a way that you will hate God, you will reject God, you will end up in hell. God knew it all before he created you, didn't have to create you, chose to create you, could have created you differently, but create you knowing you will hate him and go to hell. Willingly chose to do that, right? He is in essence setting those things in stone by taking the action of creating you. You're just living it out. Where is your ultimate control? Doesn't exist, does it? Okay? And, and again, just saying we've got free will, we've got free will, we've got free will over and over and over. It doesn't answer these questions. does not answer these questions at all. And that's ultimately at the end of the day, what Calvinism is as a position, it is people willing to man up and just tell it like it is. Right? We take, we take all these things that all Christians are stuck with, and instead of closing our eyes to them, or inventing magical things like free will to try to solve these quote-unquote mysteries or paradoxes, we just tell it like it is. We go to the Bible and seek answers, and there are no contradictions. It's just a bunch of stuff that we might not like, but that's an emotional reason. That, that doesn't mean they're not true. But again, this idea of, well, color, you can't change the color of your skin. Yeah, you can't change the color of your skin even if you wanted to. But every person who's ever been born, every person who's ever been born a God-hater in a fallen state could have loved God if they wanted to. The point is that due to the condition of their hearts as fallen sinners, they never would have wanted to unless God made the change. That's the point. So they have the faculty of love. They just don't want to love God. They have the faculty of faith. They just don't want to believe in God. They want to believe false things. That is not the same thing as the idea of skin color. The reason we reject racism so vehemently is because of the fact that you're judging somebody for a factor that's beyond their control versus judging them for the content of their character. Why is the content of their character more important? That's correct. Well, he's right. We don't judge people. We judge people for the content of their character. And so does God, by the way, as I've already shown, the difference between moral ability and natural ability. It's not that people can't do things even if they wanted to. It's that people can't do things precisely because they don't want to. And this whole idea of skin color is really a big joke to me. Because once again, people couldn't change their skin color even if they wanted to. So I, the only comparison that I can see him trying to make is that, well, they were born that way. And in Calvinism, people are born unable to do this, that, or everything's predestined so you can't do otherwise. I've already shown... 
how both sides are stuck with ability to do otherwise in the ultimate sense as being impossible. It's only in the hypothetical sense that it makes any sense, and that is the basis for responsibility. So he's trying to move responsibility over to the ultimate level where it doesn't make any sense to begin with, and it's not applicable. Right? And and if I'm stuck trying to if I'm stuck obligated to answer these questions, you are too. How do you address, as I brought up at the beginning, the idea of Pharaoh? Right? Could Pharaoh have ultimately let the people go? Ultimately? If you say yes, you're just contradicting scripture. You're calling God a liar. God said I'll harden his heart so that he won't. Ultimately, Pharaoh could not have. So was God wrong for judging Pharaoh for something that was not in his control? Well, it what was his control? What was Pharaoh's level of control? It wasn't ultimate. It was storyline level. And it was based upon the fact that he hated God and didn't want to obey his command. Okay? So, when Leighton tries to bring up racism, he's taking something that has nothing to do with content of character, skin color, which can't change even if people wanted to, and he's conflating that with something that has everything to do with content of character, loving or hating God, which is something that people could change, not ultimately, but could change hypothetically if they wanted to. Responsibility is part of creation. It's not on the ultimate level. It's on the storyline level. It's part of the way God has chosen to do things. So this is a very, very bad attempt to construct an argument against Calvinism, which is ignoring the difference between natural ability and moral ability once again. It's just conflating them, blurring them, mixing them together, considering them to be the same thing. And and Leighton over time, I've been listening to Leighton for, since the beginning of 2020, about a year now. It's almost exactly a year. And over time, I've slowly seen him be corrected on on this idea of moral ability. He, he For a while, he didn't even didn't even use the phrase moral ability. And he started using it more and more and more because Calvinists were correcting him, correcting him, correcting him. So he's been corrected over time, and now he's mentioning moral ability here and there in the terms of the phrase. But just mentioning the phrase does not mean that you're act- that you're not mis- still misrepresenting it, right? So he and and you know, how much more blatantly could you possibly misrepresent the idea of moral ability than pointing to someone's natural condition like skin color, right? And their, in, their, their natural un- inability to change that and conflating that with moral ability, right? How can you consider that a valid, valid argument or comparison? And what it shows is that Leighton Flowers wants to pretend to acknowledge the idea of moral and natural ability and a distinction there by just mentioning the phrases. But nothing he has said has demonstrated that he understands or is willing to grant that there is a distinction, to begin with, between those two things. And if you're going to conflate the idea of skin color with people loving and hating God, um, you're proving you do not understand the difference between natural and moral ability. You don't understand the relationship, and you don't understand that responsibility deals with the moral side, not the natural side. Okay? Because we actually believe they're responsible for the content of their character, not the color of their skin. Well, if Calvinism is true, that a person is born for factors beyond their control. Ultimate control. A God-hater. And he has no control over his ability or lack thereof to, to love, to follow God, or to, 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 to hear his commands, or to, to uh, humble himself and recognize his need for salvation. So he blurs this all together, right? Hearing commands, responding to commands, ability, blah, blah, blah. That's the moral ability that we've covered. People have the natural faculties to do all those things, hypothetically, if they wanted to, but they don't want to because of moral reasons, so on and so forth. Yes, we are born fallen sinners. I'm not going to accuse you. I would hope you would agree with that. So... Again, both sides are stuck with God creating people 
and it's not up to us whether or not we're created. So when he starts talking about it's beyond factors beyond their control, ultimate control, yeah, everybody's stuck with that, right? Factors beyond your control. You mean factors like when you're created, where you're created, how you're created, to what parents you're created, those kind of factors? Yeah, those are not under your control, are they? Okay, and this idea of well, they could, they're only you know they're born God haters. Whether God de- determines, right, that they're going to be born God-haters or knows that they will be born and hate him, either way, by creating them, he is determining that, that what he knows will result is, is going to happen. In other words, how do you not also have people being go- born unable to do anything other than hate God on the ultimate level? If God knows, if I create this person, they're going to hate me and they're going to go to hell. All they're ever going to do is hate me and go to hell. He knows if he creates them, this is what will happen. How is God not determining that that's precisely what will happen if he creates them? So how is your view not also stuck with people being born God-haters and in unable to be on the ultimate level and change it? You're stuck with the same problem, right? The same problem, exact same problem. And, and what you'll notice here is um, Leighton's going to claim and imply over and over, he's done so throughout this episode, that we do have some sort of ultimate ability to do otherwise or change this and that, but he'll never square that, logically speaking. He'll never explain it, right? He'll never explain how God can create you, knowing your entire future, and yet you're still in ultimate control of things. When it's so clearly God who's in ultimate control. He'll claim it, but he'll never explain it. And so it seems like how in the world can you hold somebody responsible for something they have no ability to respond to? Hypothetically, they do have the ability to respond to it, and that is the basis of moral responsibility. Men can love God. They just don't want to, so they're responsible. Men can obey God's laws. They just don't want to because they hate him, so they're responsible. You see how responsibility is a part of creation? It's a part of the storyline level. It's, it's, it's not because they couldn't ultimately do this, therefore blah, blah, blah. Nothing is under our ultimate control. We do not ultimately control anything, right? Responsibility deals with the difference between natural and moral ability, and if you do what Leighton does and just mix natural and moral ability together and consider them the same thing and don't explain the difference, this is the only basis upon which he can make things sound absurd. And that's the conundrum that she's talking about. And it's not a conundrum, as I've already shown. Now, she, like many Calvinists, um, sets up a false dichotomy. Either God is in complete control, i.e. determinism, that's what she calls sovereignty, which, by the way, sovereignty does, does not mean to control things, okay? No, he's not going to—he's going to move on to something. I want to stop this and say— it is not a false dichotomy to say that either God controls everything or he controls nothing. And I, I just want to say really quickly, I, I showed that in episode one, so if you want to hear that, go, go for episode one. Um, but he's going to move on to this idea of sovereignty. Okay. There's nowhere in any dictionary or lexicon where the word sovereignty, where you'll see the word control. Go to any thesaurus and type in sovereignty, and you will not find the word control. Okay. Sovereignty means to rule as one wishes. Now, I happen to agree with him here. Uh, I don't, I try not to, I'm getting out of the habit of using the word sovereignty because it's pretty bad, looks pretty bad when people can pop open a dictionary and the word that you're using in a particular way is not the definition. So I'm going to just openly agree with Leighton here and call my Calvinist friends to stop using the word sovereignty, not in the sense of God's not sovereign. That's not the point. If you're going to try to use sovereignty to convey the idea that God is in meticulous, determinative control of all things then you should stop using the word sovereignty and just use words like meticulous control or determinative control or causative control because you don't provide them this out. 
And what I've noticed in a lot of debates is Calvinists define sovereignty as God's meticulous control. And so blah, 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 the debate goes on. And then the other side, instead of showing why God is not in meticulous control, uses this sovereignty definition excuse to sidetrack the discussion and show how sovereignty doesn't really mean meticulous control. It just means that you're a king who gets to do what he wants and blah, blah, blah. But, and so it's a, it's a distraction, right? It's a distraction away from the point. The question is, does God meticulously control everything or not? And when we provide the excuse of them to say, well, look, sovereignty doesn't mean that, then people think that by pointing out that sovereignty doesn't mean that, they're also disproving or showing that God does not control all things. Long story short. So I don't use the word sovereignty because I don't want to provide people this, this um, excuse uh, to take the, the, the word sovereignty, run over here and just, you know, talk about definitions. I want to know how do you disprove whether or not God is in determinative control of all things. To rule as one wants, okay? He can rule however he wants to. He sits in heavens and does as he pleases, Psalm 115.3. And see, people think by pointing that out that they've disproven Calvinism and, and the claim that God controls all things. No, all you've shown is that probably Calvinists have been misusing the word sovereignty. Good for you. I agree. Well done. Now let's get back to the discussion that people care about, right? Instead of the word sovereignty, meticulous control. Does God meticulously control things or not? Your answer is no, and I want proof. I want demonstration. I want logical justification for the idea of, of this, that, and the other. And, you know, that's for other episodes. That sovereignty. Verse 16 of that same chapter says that he gives the earth over to man. So in his sovereignty, he can choose to grant a level of control or autonomy to his creatures as he chooses. Now... This is one of the biggest misreadings of, 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 a, of a verse I've ever come across, right? For you to take a verse that is obviously just saying, God has created the earth, put us on it, and given us dom dominion in the sense of working the ground, taking care of this and that, you know, it's our domain, so to speak, that he's given to us. To take that and try to make this metaphysical claim that this means that God is metaphysically disconnecting himself from you and allowing you to be autonomous and, wow, um... You know, again, better save for another episode, but that is that is I'm gonna play it over again so you can see how much of a how much of a leap, logical leap that is. That sovereignty. Verse sixteen of that same chapter says that he gives the earth over to man. Okay, he gives the earth over to man. What does that have to do with free will? So in his sovereignty he can choose to grant a level of control or autonomy to his creatures as he chooses. Wow. So in God's sovereignty he can violate Hebrews one three and metaphysically disconnect himself from people so that they can have free will. That's what you got out of that verse. That's amazing, right? God can choose to grant man autonomy in making free will choices because he gave the earth over to man, right? And once again, Hebrews 1.3 proves you're never free from God, right? Hebrews 1.3 disproves his giant leap interpretation of God just giving the earth to man. That's sovereignty. In his sovereign right, he gives the ability of creatures to rule over their own decisions and choices for which they're held morally accountable. That makes sense. That's what he got out of God giving the earth to man. Uh, you know, better save for another episode, but wow, guys, I hope you can, can see how much of a leap that is. But to say that God is sovereign does not equal that God is completely, meticulously controlling every thought, action, and deed of every single creature on this earth. Okay, so us miss us using the word wrongly, all you've proven is that maybe the Calvinist used the word wrongly, right? They changed the definition, they used their own definition, and you've shown the definition to be wrong. 
But you showing the definition to be wrong does not disprove whether or not God is meticulously controlling all things. That's never established in the Bible as far as I can tell. So that's the end of that. It's never established in the Bible that God controls all things meticulously. Except Hebrews 1.3 says, God upholds the universe at all moments at all times by his power. Acts 17 says, in God you live and move and have your being. Colossians 1 says, in God all things consist. These verses are always true. Those are the foundations I can start going into. God works all things after the counsel of his will. Uh, from him and through him and to him are all things. Uh, he controls categorical things. I can go through the weather, the animals, the hearts and minds of men. I can, And I'm going to do an exhaustive episode on this in the future. God most certainly does, and the Bible most certainly does teach, that God is in meticulous control of all things from start to finish. And to quote a verse where God just... God has given the earth to man, and you're going to conclude from that that he's therefore not meticulously in determinative metaphysical control of all things. Just going to have to say that for another episode, guys. I, I hope you can see how much eisegesis just took place there. All right, we're nearing the end of this particular episode. Uh, I want to do what I did in episode two at the end and do a, a summary. I think I'm going to make that a regular format uh, where, you know, after two hours, what's another five minutes? But to clearly and concisely summarize what we talked about, I think it helps a lot of people because as you go point by point, things can branch off in all sorts of directions, and it's nice to just bring it all together at the end. So let's run through this. The Bible teaches that both that God has determined all things and controls all things, and that God has given commands and holds us responsible. The Bible teaches both. Okay, Human responsibility is a part of creation. It's a part of what God has determined will take place. God's control of all things is on the transcendent creator-sustainer level, while human responsibility is on the storyline level. It's part of the story. It's part of the picture. It's part of what has been determined. So there are there is no contradiction between these two things. There only appears to be a contradiction when the false assumption that responsibility to God presupposes freedom from God is introduced into the discussion. This false assumption is found nowhere in the Bible and is in fact directly refuted by multiple verses which teach that you can never be free from God to begin with. The discussion of whether or not God controls all things can be saved for another day, but it's important to recognize that you don't get to use this unjustified false assumption to disprove whether or not God controls all things. You need to justify your claim um, that God only holds people responsible if he does not control them. You need to use the Bible and logic to demonstrate that God does not control all things, you don't get to merely use a presupposition that you make to refute an entire position. So we, we talked about how both sides are facing the reality that God is in ultimate control. No one chooses when or how um, they will be created. It's, it's all up to God which of the millions of ways he could have created us. Even in a free will view, God is willingly choosing to create people knowing their entire lives ahead of time, including whether or not they'll end up in hell. And it's all based upon and connected to when and where and how he creates them. God could choose to create them differently, or even not at all, but he goes forward with creating them anyways, and so no Christian can avoid God being in ultimate control of every part of your life. We talked about how, on this basis, the idea of doing, quote-unquote, doing otherwise, in the ultimate sense, is logically impossible. Therefore, doing otherwise must be understood in some other sense, and as I pointed out, it is in the hypothetical sense. We all could have, quote-unquote, done otherwise in the hypothetical, hypothetical sense of having the faculties and means to have done otherwise. Looking backwards into the past, options were legitimate options, not because we could have actually done them, 
you know, even falsifying the foreknowledge of God in the process, we could not have actually done them. But they're, they're still legitimate options because we had the natural means of doing so, hypothetically. If we had wanted to, we could have. If we had wanted to, there would be nothing physically preventing us from doing it, from acting on those desires if we had had them. But we need to understand that even our wanting to do something is part of the determinative chain of reality. And in order for us to have actually and ultimately done otherwise or wanted to do otherwise, something about the situation would have had to have been different. And none of us are in control, ultimate control of these particular situations. It is upon this basis of, of quote-unquote doing otherwise, being true or false in different senses, that we talked about the difference between natural and moral ability. This is something that we cannot only relate to on a daily basis, but it is something that the scripture spells out word for word. I gave the examples. Joseph, Joseph's brothers could not speak peaceably to him, not because they couldn't speak, period, but because they hated him. Their disposition of hatred towards their brother prevented them from properly utilizing their faculty of speech to speak peaceably to him, and therefore they are responsible for not doing what they hypothetically could have done, because they didn't want to. Their disposition must change, and dispositions can and do change, but once again, for determinative reasons. Moving on to Pharaoh, Pharaoh could not let the people go, not because he could not give the command or physically walk them out the gates himself, but because of his pride and, and disposition of hatred toward God. He is held responsible upon this basis for not wanting to do what he hypothetically could have done. He is not held responsible on the basis of being able to have ultimately done otherwise. The case of Pharaoh directly refutes the claim that responsibility presupposes freedom. Pharaoh was not free from God at any point. Pharaoh could not have let the people go ultimately, and to say otherwise is to call God a liar. And we tie this whole concept of moral and natural ability back into this general discussion of fallen sinners and people you know, ending up saved or not saved. Romans 8 says that fallen man cannot submit to God's law, right? Because of their disposition of hatred toward him. And until that disposition is changed, until the condition of their heart is changed by a gracious act of God, they will all continue to reject God willingly and continue disobeying his commands willingly. It's not that they can't believe, period, or can't love, period, or can't obey commands, period. They can't believe or love or obey God because they hate him. And this is the basis of responsibility. Once again, it's on the storyline level, not the ultimate level. We showed how the other side merely mentioning or making use of the phrases natural and moral ability does not necessarily mean they understand the difference or relationship between the two, or even willing to grant that there is a difference in the first place. When the other side says simple things like, free will means we have both the natural and moral ability to do X, Y, or Z, you're not only blurring the distinction between the two and ignoring the relationship, but you're also contradicting scripture outright. The Bible in multiple instances speaks of moral inability. Maybe not in terms of the phrase, but conceptually, as I've pointed out. People being unable to do things that they have the natural faculties to do. All because of the condition of their heart. When you compare the Calvinist view of moral ability with something like racism or color of skin, you demonstrate beyond a shadow of a doubt that you either, number one, don't understand the argument being made, or number two, aren't willing to grant that there is an actual difference between natural and moral ability. When you say that we're able to do things that the Bible says we're unable to do, you might want to slow down and double-check your argument. We talked briefly about the difference between ultimate and only when it comes to the reasons why things happen. God is, of course, the ultimate reason anything and everything happens, but that doesn't mean you get to ignore all the storyline-level reasons behind why things happen. How is God and why is God doing things the way he's doing them? To say that someone ends up in hell 
ultimately because God determined they would, is not the same thing as saying that the only reason they end up in hell is because God determined that they would. Those are two different statements, and the difference is important. God is not only determining what will happen, but also why or how those things will happen. People end up in hell because of their sin. Sin takes place in time, on the storyline level. And you can't ignore it and leave it out in order to try to make Calvinism just seem emotionally absurd. right? God judges sin in time, and it's based upon things that occur in time, it's all part of the story that God has written. God is not judging people based upon whether or not they could have ultimately done otherwise. And once again, both sides are stuck with God being in ultimate control. Both sides are stuck with things on the ultimate level being up to God and not up to us. And anyone who wants to try to claim that things can be or are in fact somehow up to us on the ultimate level need to do more than just claim it. They need to prove it and demonstrate it, both scripturally and logically. The problem is that the Bible never, not even once, speaks of man being in ultimate control, right? And logic provides no avenue or possibility of man in being in ultimate control, no matter what road you go down. If you were to try to attempt to go down that logical road, you would end up saying something ridiculous, like man somehow created himself, or God asked people before he created them whether or not they would like to be created. Again, trying to put yourself in the transcendent position doesn't work. And of course, nobody believes those things, which demonstrates that they are logical impossibilities and absurdities to begin with. We talked briefly about how Calvinism does not malign God's character because a proper understanding of what sin is, the breaking of laws, allows for God to be in metaphysical control of his creation at all times, as Hebrews 1.3 clearly, clearly teaches, including upholding sinners while they sin and not be a sinner himself. It doesn't malign his character to be upholding sinners while they sin, being in control of sin. There's nothing ontologically evil about anything that God created or sustains, and therefore we do not need to metaphysically distance God from anything in creation. God would only be a sinner if there were laws that he could break to begin with. Since God has no laws, it is impossible for God to sin in the first place. There's no law that says that God can't control sin, can't cause sin, can't determine sin, can't plan or purpose sin. Therefore, God is not sinning when he does any of these things. God is good by definition, and he is the standard. He is not compared to a standard of good. God is not good because he lives up to a standard. God is the standard of good. And therefore, anything that God does, including planning, purposing, determining, causing sin, is also good. It is good for God to do all of those things because God has a purpose in all of it. We talked about how Calvinists should outright deny free will from the start. Attack the problem at the source. Free will being freedom from God. And then answer all the questions that flow out from that. Talking about compatibilism, quote-unquote, compatibilism, and moving the reference point for freedom away from God momentarily onto you doing what you want is a waste of time. And at the end of the day, when the other side moves the, reference, moves the reference point back onto God, most of you will be stuck appealing to mystery because you, as Calvinists, are holding onto the very, some of the very same false assumptions that the non-Calvinists do. You'll be made to look bad, inconsistent, and you'll be made to look weak in your argumentation. So Calvinists should deny that responsibility to God presupposes freedom from God. Calvinists should deny that God needs to be metaphysically distanced from evil. Calvinists should deny that soft Calvinists should deny the concept of the difference between soft determinism and hard determinism. They should unashamedly affirm hard determinism, full-blown determinism. And any attempt to make Calvinism appeal to more people or seem less less harsh or extreme is going to result in an unstable, inconsistent position. And it's my goal with this podcast not only to refute the non-Calvinist positions, but also to call Calvinists to a higher standard of consistency at the same time. I'm obviously going to have enemies on both sides, and that is just fine. It doesn't bother me one bit. At least I'll have a consistent, a consistent, biblically and logically based, irrefutable position, and I won't be left appealing to mystery or paradox 
or calling things conundrums or anything like that. The Bible gives the answers. And as long as we do not falsely assume things along the way, there are no contradictions, there are no paradoxes. All you're left with is things that you might not like. But truth doesn't care about what you like or, or don't like or what makes you feel good. Truth is truth, and that's what we're here for. That brings us to the end of episode three. If you have enjoyed it, please like, subscribe, share, do all that good stuff. Um, that's the only way this stuff can get out there. It is in God's hands by means of you guys. And I certainly appreciate anybody who goes through the extra effort to share these things. You can find Consistent Calvinism Podcast on YouTube and your favorite podcasting app. Um, I'm not quite sure what I'm going to do for the next episode. There's so many directions to go in, so many different things I could respond to. I'll figure something out within the next week or two. And don't forget to follow on Twitter at the letter C Calvinism, at C Calvinism for uh, discussions and updates there as well. So you guys take it easy. See you next time. (laughs) 